Yeah. And, and you're working from home or everyone uh, working from home or are some coming into the office here in Sweden as well? Or what's Well, the... actually, we don't have we don't have a physical office in Sweden. Uh, really. we, I used to um, rent space at Epicenter, but once mm -hmm. the pandemic hit, um, the, you know, it really didn't make any sense anymore right now. No. So my, <laughs> to my wife's great disappointment, the living room has been <laughs> remodeled into my small office, uh, which okay. is kind of a combination of an office and a man cave, to be quite honest <laughs> with you. There are a few guitars and pianos and stuff <laughs> staying around. Um, yeah, it almost feels sad for Epicenter and on, on all these kind of uh, you know co-working centers now these days. They, yeah, they must they, be hitting hard. But they kept they kept it lively still, right? So, so there were a lot of uh, newsletters going out. It still okay. organized things. So but yeah. we were went bankrupt here in Stockholm, right? Or at least they closed down that <sighs> office. I don't know. Way. I mean, I did you hear this the, the podcast around the WeWork? Uh, uh, no. Okay, you should check that out. What was that? Uh, it, it's called We Crashed. <laughs> of course, it is. It's a story about the founder. Um, it's quite interesting. It's a bit like bad blood, but you know, a bit uh, more recent. So it was the, the execution was not the best, or well, you know, I don't want to get into it too much, right? You should check it out. But uh, yeah, <laughs> it's an no. interesting story. It is a very interesting story. It's mm -hmm. a very interesting story. Yeah, one that tends to repeat itself in certain circles. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. but um, maybe once again, circle back to. You basically this morning, what, yeah. what, how did it unfold for you? What happened? Well, well, I woke up this morning as I always do. Uh, are we live? Okay, yes. great. As I always do, uh, took my shower, um, could, you know, made my coffee, sat down for some uh, morning news, uh, only to see the situation between you know, Russia and Ukraine sort of unfold in real time. And, you know, we have team members uh, working from Ukraine with team members of Russian background. We have team members of mixed Russian Ukrainian background. So I felt, okay, this is, you know, I need to think about this, right? And and how do we deal with this? And you know, only moments later, I learned that uh, you know our our colleagues from our Ukraine uh, have been dialing into our standups as always. Mm. Um, you know, and they're saying hello, just saying hello, joining up. And say, how are you this. doing, man? What's yeah. what's happening? Well, I'm in a cab right now on my way to the bank. I'm going to see if I can get my cash out, right? Uh, another person was like, well, I'm actually heading into the office for the first time in a long time because I don't feel as safe here, at close to the border. So they're right. more safe in the office rather than in the home. So he, so basically, people are just, you know, I to some extent, it's like people have been, they've been waiting to kind of understand how is this going to unfold. And once it unfolds, I suspect they've been thinking about what to do. And now they're putting those plans in action. That's how I felt about it anyway. Mm. And of course, you know, our colleagues with with um, you know with, with Russian background, they feel like, you know, you know, you know I've. I, I've been led to understand that some feel a bit of a guilt by association, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's something you need to deal with a little bit, right? You need to make sure that here at the office, um, we are one family. Uh, it's about us and what we do here. Everybody's an individual. Mm -hmm. um, we need to support. We need to listen to people yeah. um, and, you know, just help as much as we can. And we do shouldn't you, get into political statements here, but, but still it's, it's kind of... Did you get into if they support Putin or not or...? or? No, I don't. I don't want to. I mean, <clears throat> uh, in in some of the you know pre-talk here we talked about, you know, so yeah. we also had teams in 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 the US, right? Yeah, yeah. And we had the Trump elections, yeah. and, and now we have Putin. You know, I, we tried to stay clear of that yeah. as much as possible. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, I think and, it's a good you know, policy, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, is that how, how? I mean, if you have like a multi-country uh, workforce as you do, uh, and we still have to have people working with each other, even when at war, so to speak. Mm. Uh, how do you manage that? What's the... Oh, God, I wish I had the answer. Um, <laughs> but I mean, if, for me, I have to kind of make this a bit about sort of how I try to do this. I'm not saying mm. that I have the answer to these questions, right? But I have to go back to how, what feels genuinely like what I can contribute with. And I can listen mm. and I can try not to judge, try to leave my own biases at the door mm. and just figure out how can we support. Mm. 
Um, and I am, it may sound simple, but it's kind of the best answer uh, I have uh, now, right? And, uh, to be human. Yeah. To be authentic. To be caring. Exactly. To have empathy. Yeah. Not, I, too, I, not too much though. No, maybe not. But I, I was, one question that I, that was on my mind. How, how do you feel the team? Do they seek normality? Do they seek to have the call in and the, you know, the normal stand up? Is that a good thing for them? So, or, or do they need to sort of start working on other things or actually are they seeking? Let's, 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 let's use role here. Yeah. yeah. Or, or, or are they seeking, you know, other discussions this morning or are they seeking normality, so to speak? Well, it's always, um, I mean, there, there are two, um, there are two potential pitfalls I can fall into now, right? One is generalized and the other one is pretending that I don't know what goes through people's heads, right? <laughs> but, if I, but if I do that anyway. <laughs> Let's do that anyway. <laughs> Let's do that anyway. Well, that no, but I, I, I would not be surprised if the sort of morning stand in the routine uh, provides some sense of normality or some sense of structure. I wouldn't be surprised. So that's um, a good thing for like stability reasons. Yeah, but let, I, guess, uh, as, uh, I think for me, it would be like the way yeah. I'm wired. I think having that thing that I can hang my day on yeah. would be helpful. Right. Yeah. I can't speak for the individuals yeah. that are, that but, are that we're working with. So if I rephrase the question, the good point from you. If I rephrase the question, are you planning to, you know, try to keep the light on, you know, do the best of the situation and then be Arundo and do what, you know, we are us. We, we get our stuff going. We have our goals. And we do it together. Yeah. So yes, we're going to, I mean, for us, it's, um, I mean, it is a, I mean, we're talking about a part of our, if we talk about the people that are directly affected by yes. this, like physically directly affected by this, it's a small part of our workforce, right? Yeah. Um, we will, of course, try to keep the lights on. The thing is that it's a, it's a fine balance to set between making sure we're keeping the lights on and, and, be and, and, and busy, but then also make sure people are safe. Be safe. Be yeah, safe. exactly. Yeah, that's that's that. that's the thing, right? So, what we said is, you know, check if you want to join the check-ins, please do. You know, there's a lot of stuff that we, we're going to do. If you can't, if don't. you can't, don't. Exactly. Just don't, right? And and if you need help, just let us know. So basically, we are here, and we if you want stability and you want to join this, we we are all for it, and you know, we go. If you have other things that are more important right now, we support you 100 percent in what 100%. you need. 100 percent. 100 percent. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I mean, uh, again, I don't know, you know, running the danger of making promises that I can't keep up, right? But <laughs> the other thing is that I do mean it technically when I say that if, if people need help, they will get the help they need, right? We're not yeah. going to, you know, if somebody can't show up for whatever, right? It's not like we're going to leave them hanging, right? We're going to make sure that they, there's continuity, if you know what I mean. Mm. Uh, that th we're going to be here when, when, when you feel safe again, when you're ready to go back to work, we're going to be here. Yeah. yeah. I think that's a good, uh, good statement. Yeah. So interesting. Uh, much <laughs> I don't know. This, yeah. And, and um, then, yeah. yeah and how to, yeah. And, and uh, if I flip it from another way, mm -hmm. maybe last question, how do you see what is unfolding here, uh, affecting us or you as a company uh, and this as a CEO in relation, okay, you have part of your organization and operation here, but it has the whole macro perspective of things. Yeah. Have you seen any other things? Have you thought about any other angles that you need to, analyze or consider yeah we had uh, we've had plenty of conversations about that and, and throughout the morning today as well in the in the um, in the management team um i mean there are some macro trends which are fairly obvious that you can just watch in real time as their own fold you see the oil prices increasing you mm. see the energy prices moving you see the, how the stock market is, is evolving um Cybersecurity, I think, is going to be a topic that we need to be very uh, aware of as we mm. move into this. Mm. Um, so these are things that we are trying to be as prepared for as we can. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but you know, are you are you already now saying sort of? If I used to, I, I'm so inspired by Spotify here that we talk about the data, the insights, 
the bets and the beliefs? Mm-hmm. Have you formed any new insights, bets and beliefs based on the macro view of what you have sort of seen unfolding the last month? Well, I mean... Like um, what you need to take into consideration for Arund? Insights, bets and beliefs. Um, I mean, I, I'm just reinforcing my belief in people. Um, that at the end of the day, regardless of, you know, whatever's going on in the world, whatever association you may or may not have to what's going on here, mm. individuals want to do good. They want to, you know, they want yeah. to, to contribute. Yeah. And my belief in that has only strengthened anything else. Yeah. yeah. In terms of insights or bets, nothing revolutionary. It's, it's, it's this so nothing that sort of changes the game and what you're doing. So you need to tweak and pivot your direction. Um, I... I'm a very careful captain. Um, mm. I only steer my ship into a new, onto a new course, for better or worse. Mm-hmm. Once I have understood that course in some in some in some yes, detail, too early to too say. Early. Really. So, so for me, I think it's too early to say that we're going to kind of switch any directions at this point. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. I, mean, yeah. I, I love what you said. You know, believe in the goodness of people, and, and they all have it, no matter what their nationality is. Right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's we all belong. You can, def, you know, the way you can. De- you can define yourself in so many different ways. Mm. And, and the one that matters to us as a company is what we do as a company when we are mm. doing our jobs. Mm. And, and the other ways that you may, you know, associate yourself or your beliefs, your groundings is, it's absolutely fine, but it's, it's, you know, it's an arbitrary amount of different ways you can do that. Right. Yeah. And, we, and it's, it's, it's a, it's another t-shirt, you know, believe in the goodness of people. I think that would be <laughs> yeah. something. Yeah. Well said, uh, and very welcome here. Thank you. Martin uh, Lundqvist, the CEO of Arundo Analytics. Yeah. Uh, we have so many topics to cover, uh, but let's start a bit with you before we go uh, into those topics. Okay. Um, and how would you describe yourself? What's Who is Martin Lundqvist? Oh, uh, so <laughs> demographically, um, born and raised south of Gothenburg. Mm. Um, grew up around computers, musical instruments, um, so kind of a, a music tech nerd type of guy. So combination of music and tech. I've yeah. heard that before sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> we, we have had a couple of guests actually. Yeah. Surprisingly <laughs> strong correlation. Between There's a strong oh, correlation. Sorry. We have several you need synthesizer to talk to the nerds. This, you need to talk to tech. the people booking this podcast, you know, some <laughs> more diversity <laughs> going. Uh, but, uh, Could be some influence there. I think, I think I spent most of my youth behind the keyboard of some sort uh, yeah. until I picked up a guitar, uh, but still, you know, there's strings so, involved. Okay. So yeah. guitar now, yeah? Well, I dabbled. You dabbled, yeah. And what what made you sort of add the guitar to the repertoire? Ah, Jimi Hendrix, of course. Of course, of course. My dad is a huge Dire Straits fan. Uh, Mark Knopfler, uh, you know. So those records were going in the boat on the in the summers when we were sailing, uh, listening to Dire Straits all the time. Um, so of course, you know, the step to Jimi Hendrix was very short. And so I, I picked up one of these books, you know, with tab tablatures, hmm. and I took my dad's guitar and I started dabbling. Mm. And and so the going from piano to synthesizer, mm-hmm. are you going analog to you know electric in the guitar, or are you starting electric from the get go? Oh man, how much time do you have? Um, <laughs> no, I, I, I so I'm a mix of um, I'm a huge fan of Depeche Mode and that whole, but also a huge fan of Metallica and that whole world. And mm-hmm. those two worlds collapsed for me in a very good way. So I would play Metallica on the guitar, and then I would try to reproduce Depeche Mode tracks on the on my sort of small okay. s- setup I had. Yeah. Do you, do you believe there is a connection between, you know, interest in music and technology? Is there an advantage to actually have studied music to be good in technology or vice versa? 
Well, I think the, the question I would ask, I think the question that I see in what you're asking is, are there, are there some traits that would naturally lead you to have those both interests? And right. I think for me, yeah, there Good is. I mean, I, I, I love being in the flow to, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, I don't know if my wife is listening to this, but she will confirm the fact that when I, when, if I sit down now at the piano or behind the computer, I will just disappear for two hours, three hours, four hours. Mm. And there's something, there's something in common with just, you know, getting into the flow and just focusing very much on something. Mm. Um, so you can do the same in programming, basically, you get in the flow in some way. Yeah, or? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I picked up coding again very recently and I do this. I'll, I'll just kind of disappear, mm-hmm. you know, from eight. Money, money totally immersed or money totally absorbed. Yes. By the, to- by the yeah. topic. And you're frustrated and you're working on it and you're reading up and you're learning and oh, you learn something new and you have two hours of frustration, you have this one minute of, yeah, and that, it's worth Maybe it. that, that is a similarity in, you know, mastering and in mastering anything. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That sounds good. Yeah. Okay. But just to, to go through a bit about the background as well. Yeah. Oh, we got stuck. Sorry. No, no. We're no, going to do this uh, a lot fine, that we, yeah. you know, we, we, we go into rabbit holes all the time. Yes. And we do it on purpose. So it's all good. <laughs> yes. But you started also studying at what year, basically? Oh yeah, that's, sorry, yeah. So, so yeah, so basically, I think my um, my parents informed me in a very gentle way that my future career does not lie in music, uh, <laughs> and that my grades were fairly good. So um, I decided to uh, do the do the most I could, can with the grades I had, um, mm-hmm. and this answer to me was uh, industrial economy, so industrial engineering in in Lean Shopping. Lean Shopping, yeah, yeah that's so, a good place. Oh, I okay. love that place. It's a great place, Lean Shopping. No, so I went no there. No subjectivity there, but uh, yeah. I went there as well. The the alumnus are everywhere. Um, uh, No, so I studied there in in, uh, industrial management engineering with a sort of a computer science and corporate finance angle to it. Um, uh, Ended up um, studying a year in Switzerland um, at the age. And then I spent another year there working at a bank with software. What what do you think about ETH? I mean, it has a very high reputation. building. Yeah. Uh, It's a beautiful building. It's only the building. The campus is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I had a great time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what's good with ATH besides the building and having a fun time? You can have a fun time, I think, in lead shopping or Shalmash and KTH as well. Well, I mean, uh, what I'm about to say now is in no way or shape meant as a criticism to any of the other universities that I may have set my foot on. But I have to say that the quality of the um, the professors and the, the teachers at ETH, which is something else. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and ETH, for people that don't know, is one of the top universities uh in Switzerland as well, right? Yeah, um, it is. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is a one of those uh, sort of top technical universities, I think. Um, and uh, I think they're able to track the type of teachers that have been out there having careers mm-hmm. um, for a long time, and, and they decide to go back to teaching. And they can do that while still maintaining some of the lifestyle that they enjoyed while being in in the private right. sector. So you just have that next level quality of of, uh, of experience, I would say. Um, having professor with actual experience in the you know, private professional life. That's, that, that's a good uh, combination. It helps. Awesome. It helps. Yeah, mm. it helps. Yeah. I mean, like you st- I, I can use spin on that and imagine how much difference is when someone can be theoretical, pause and start driving, driving storytelling anecdotes, applying and exemplifying. Yes. That must be quite uh, good. Uh, and, and you're spot on. And I think it, I, not that I particularly was into marketing, but I did take, because it was part of the, program I did in the marketing classes and the professor there, he did exactly that. So he had spent uh, decades as a marketing officer at various, uh, you know, consumer goods companies. And he did exactly that, right? So he had a theory, he had a framework, he had some, um, you know, evidence supporting the framework. And then we did case studies, his case studies, his personal experience, went through them uh, and basically asked the question, how would you have solved this? And we went into teams, we thought about it. And then we came back and he, then he said, this is how I solved it. 
And, you know, sometimes, you know, he would say that would not have worked. And sometimes he would say, that's a good idea. I should have done that. Exactly. And that just gives it a different experience. Uh, but yeah. that's the next level. We have all done case studies at school. Let's do my case study. Yeah. yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, he wasn't the most humble guy. But <laughs> <laughs> I like num- no, humble guys. No, sometimes. you know, it's kind of if you're the best, it's hard to be humble. <laughs> <laughs> nah, I wouldn't know. <laughs> well said. Um, okay, but then um, you had a, a small period of time on your life at some company. Yeah, a little small piece of time. <laughs> oh yeah, I know what you're referring to. Uh, well, when I um, um, when I fi- when I was about to finalize my studies, um, I was absolutely dead set that I'm going to start my own software company. There's no ah, question okay. about it, right? Oh, you had an idea of entrepreneurship. Oh software. yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, but I was more thinking, yeah, yes. In hindsight, it was an idea about entrepreneurship. It was not really an idea about entrepreneurship. It was an idea about just building software. Okay. And did you have <laughs> yeah. a, you have did you have a clear idea what to build at that point? Well, I, want, I had I had been helping out on the side uh, a media company that was building uh, different types of web uh, web web applications. We would call them today. So you mm-hmm. know small games in Java and stuff like that. So I just wanted to start there, just do, build small things, right? Mm. Uh, and do it in my own setup. But of course I graduated in the year, well, in the, uh, what is it, early 2000. Mm. Probably the worst case, time in history to start your own software company, yes. right? So <laughs> I just heard plan B everywhere. And uh, friends of mine that I had met at, uh, or people I'd met at um, in Zurich while studying there, they, they went into consulting. Mm-hmm. And so uh, they suggested quite strongly that I should try the same. And in 2001, it was a big IT crash for, for people who don't know it. A, a small one or a rather big one, right? It was a rather big one, yeah. The, <laughs> the dot-com bubble burst yes. as, as, it, as the story goes. Yeah. Yeah, and also um, I had friends that worked at McKinsey Company and they suggested that I should apply, which mm-hmm. I did. And uh, my my plan was to stay around for a few years and pick up some some learnings and then mm-hmm. go back to, you know, starting my own thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, as you are rightly sort of indicating here, I did end up staying there for quite a while longer. <laughs> like 17 years, which yeah. is a really long time. It's not a healthy time for anyone to have a job. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. What do you think about that? How, if you look back over the years, do you think you should have... Uh, switch job earlier or was it still useful for you or and, and a good thing for you? Because you do different jobs or different <laughs> levels of a job, of course, in 17 yeah. years. It's not yeah. the same job. Yeah, but a few, there are a few things that made it so obvious to me to carry on. One of them is what you're saying now, which is that, like there's a new, there's a different job every month, every quarter. There are new clients coming in with new types of problems. You're working with new teams. You get to see the world. You get more seniority. You get more seniority. Towards and, partnership. And, and there is a clear path. Exactly. The, the career path is very clearly set. It's very attractive. The other thing is that you, you keep working with young people all the time, mm-hmm. right? So you get older, but the people you're working with is they young. Um, and, and that's a bit like being at campus. I love that, yeah. right? You have that fresh energy. Everybody is very driven, mm-hmm. very ambitious and, and very goal oriented. So it makes for a very nice culture, you know, mm-hmm. kind of this culture of striving and, and, yeah. and just doing better and better. Um, and then, um, it, there was also the thing that I got to see many different industries. So, mm-hmm. uh, I wasn't very, I've never been too much of a, you know, a traditional sort of having a traditional business interest as such. I have never been the guy that reads business magazines and keep up to date with business related, you know, trends, etc. That's something that came later, but I was fascinated by problems, right? Mm. And the more weird the problems were, the more it fascinated me. And, and that is something that a, a, a place like McKinsey will bring you. You will have new types of roles all the time. And the other thing with a company like that, which is global is Every time there is a situation that unfolds, someone has seen something similar before. And there are, in those days, a phone call away, later an email away, and now I guess there's Slack away. Um, so you could still always 
evolve yourself and, and personally develop uh, in your skills yeah. in a company like that? that and, and that was the, uh, yeah, if I were to summarize it in, in sort of, you know, on a nutshell, it is that. The, the, my personal growth was, the curve was incredibly steep and it kept being steep. It kept yeah. being steep over it kept time. Being steep over Which time. is, if you think about it, uh, we, we are actually talking a lot about, should we pursue economies of learning instead of econom economies of scale? It's quite interesting if you have a very, very steep learning curve, you, you might be in a very good spot in one way. Yeah. I have, um, I have Perhaps a you, Before we would go into yeah. that, we, we haven't really explained what McKinsey is. No, and I will, okay, let me frame it. Okay. Because yeah. I was going to have a question, which is more about a little bit, little, little bit of a rabbit hole, but let, let's start yeah. from that angle. Yes. So imagine we have some, some of our viewers who are sort of interesting and intrigued around, you know, consulting, maybe some younger or someone who's thinking about switching into a management consultant career, Yeah. but, it, but it's a little bit on the outside. So first of all, who is McKinsey in this space? And, and it would be very interesting to hear someone who, under, who has been in, a, in, in this game for 17 years and done sort of the career or the sort of have a deep learning curve. If you could, you know, like the deep learning curve, there's yeah. double twist on that uh, one. That's a good one. That's, uh, <laughs> you picked it up. That's a second t-shirt. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but exactly. deep learning curve. Yeah. But, but, um, the core question is McKinsey and put that in context, but actually could you educate us a little bit about how, what's the mechanics and what was the career path? How does a, a management consultancy work or, or, you know, that allows you to stay for 70 years and, and have a great learning curve. So, so how does what what is management consulting in your words in this way? And okay, how does it work? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll get into it. And, and again, I'm I'm a man of caveats, right? So I'll give you my experience of it. And there's no by, by you know by no stretch of imagination am I going to sort of properly represent you know what the official view would be from from anyone at McKinsey or any other management consultancy, right? Yeah. But I'll I'll talk to it from my experience, right? And I think management consulting is it was sort of born in the mid twenties. And mm. it was an attempt to marry, at least in McKinsey's, um, in, the, in the case of McKinsey, marry a bit sort of the, the professional framework of a law firm with, with something which is more a scientific approach to management. Uh, as what James O. McKinsey brought, I think, again, someone's going to fact check me. He brought kind of the, the, the science of management, which is the way you can advise, the way you can understand companies is by analyzing workflows, analyzing organization, following the money, basically, right? Mm. And I think what Marvin Bower later brought, again, this is grossly oversimplified is more the, the sort of framework and ethics of a law firm, mm. uh, long-term client relationships, um, having sustainable impact over time. Uh, we, the language was even different. So we uh, didn't sell projects, we developed clients, we did studies and we built relationships over time. So the combination of the, the kind of the, the framework of a law firm and then a scientific approach to management. That's kind of what- it And when you say the framework of a law firm, also the organizational construct I think, I think to some degree, I think so. I mean, I, this is, um, I believe one of the things that, um, they, I, at least, uh, I, you know, McKinsey, but companies, uh, of, of similar sorts hold very dearly is the, the notion of a, of a partnership, a global partnership. Mm. Um, and I think in McKinsey, I, th I believe McKinsey is one of the few firms in the world that still have a properly global partnership where there is only one central profit pool. Mm. And what that really allows you to do is to create an atmosphere and incentive of growing and helping working internationally, bringing the best expertise in. Um, and that is something that, that kind of, it, that I saw the benefits of at least as, and it was one of the reasons I, I stayed, stayed around for so long as well. McKinsey is truly global, right? How many countries people is working at McKinsey? Oh, now I don't know. It was growing so fast when I left. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Approximately. I will know. I, you know, maybe missed the fact check. What was your number? And like when you left, how big was McKinsey? This when, is a couple of years when, back. When now. I left, yeah. I think 13,000. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Something and in most that. countries of the world as well, or was it some? Well, in most, all over the place. Uh, I can't remember if we had 70, 70, 72 offices around the world, something like that. Mm. I mean, um, I stand to be corrected on these numbers. Uh, but um, yeah, no. So, um, I mean, so, uh, to answer your question is what, what, what happens is that we, um, in those days, you know, help clients to try and move forward and create alignment around tricky problems. Um, mm choice of market, organizational change, mergers and acquisitions. Of course, digitization was a big thing as well, you know, embracing technology in the right ways, avoiding the pitfalls of where to invest, where not to invest in technology and so, how to so get the value out. So is that what management consultancy is about or how would you define what management consultants are doing? Well, it's providing advice to the C-suite in a nutshell. Yeah. Um, but, but of and course, then then what they're providing advice on, does you have different branches and fields within management consulting. Yeah, it's a, it's a matrix as always. And I yeah. think most management consultants are organized a bit in a matrix way. Uh, so there are industries and then there are practices, right? So, you know, you can do supply chain for manufacturing or, you know, uh, customer experience for consumer goods. And you will have people that are experts in the industry, will people that are experts in the function, in the intersection. You don't have the, the, actual, the actual clients that you're working with. Mm. Which means that over time you can, and that is why I think, you know, the the framework of a law firm kind of makes sense because you have a person that is responsible for a client organization. Mm -hmm. And then that person can bring in the competences required, regardless of where they are in the world to help sort out the problem at hand. And, and, um, and now maybe a little bit, um, not provocative, but, Should. but, but, um, uh, and a learning that I think we see when we talk about data and AI and, and really mastering value creation from data algorithms and software and being and infusing that as part of core business, um, it starts to sort of dissolve the traditional silos of functions. And you, you get away from that organizational construct. You know, you need to have cross-disciplinary teams and you need to have an algorithm guy next to a data guy, next, next to the service designer guy, next to the business PL guy. And all of a sudden these functions kind of need to work in a holistic framework anymore. So. Mm -hmm. How does that impact if you want to give advice, you know, if you're coming from a matrix that is sort of more structured to the more Tayloristic organizational construct? Do you, you know, how, how, what do you think is happening here? I, I have a, I have a tendency to oversimplify and generalize, so that's you know, probably more rabbit holes coming out of this. But I, my simple framework is that uh, there's people, people probably feel good having a a functional home, a, a place where they feel this here is a field where I'm sort of kind of an expert, mm -hmm. something I know a bit better than something else. You can translate that to anything like so do software development, maybe you know React a bit better than you know something else, mm -hmm. right? Um, as a home. That does not dictate what you do day to day. So so the way I think about it is that there's a difference between your functional home and then what you do day to day. And I think, as you rightly point out, I would agree that 100%, if you're developing software products, uh, you know, you need to integrate all the way from software design via en engineering, data engineering, data science, infrastructure, all the way down to, you know, control system integration and stuff that we have to do. That is a cross-functional team. And that's what they do on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, but they still have a functional home uh, if so, they choose to, right? So in a way, we need to be T-shaped, right? We need yeah. to, we want to have a domain expertise well home. Said, yeah. But 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 I think it's really emphasized in in management and leadership and how you organize. But I think also this is a core challenge for a lot of people. You want to have a cross-functional home or team, and you still want to have a functional home or team. Yeah. 
How do you fix that? Well, we made a choice. So now this is a bit of a, and I say we now, I mean Arundel, so I can just a bit of a segue, I guess, but we made a choice to say there needs to be a, that there needs to be a one, one of these organizational dimensions needs to be the leading one, mm-hmm. one that, that kind of owns what we do as a company. And in yes. our case, it's the product team. Right. So the frontline fighting units, if you will, if I, yeah. I'm not going to use yes. military, I'm going to use military terminology here, but it's the front common in, so in, in, to explain pedagogically is quite when okay. there are guys around the table. Yeah. <laughs> so be careful. Touché, touché. Uh, but no, so, but the, the kind of, uh, the frontline for us is the product team. Yeah. Um, and that means cross-functional. And that's always cross-functional. Yes. Yes. Because, we, and, and, but you still want to have a functional home. Yes. Right. So yeah. that's a compliment, I guess, to the product team in some way. It and, is. And, and the balance to strike is to, in our case, it is to communicate quite clearly that the, the buck stops with the product, i.e. Mm-hmm. So you, 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 we, you belong to a function perhaps. So you report into engineering, for example, mm-hmm. or you report into delivery, or you report in somewhere else. Um, and that's great, right? That is where you, that's the place for you to discuss your personal development. It's a place for you to get coaching. It's a place for you to get that aspect of life and that aspect of growth. Yeah. Now, in terms of developing the product, in our case, which is what we're selling, uh, the product team is 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 allowed and and encouraged to overrule any functional opinions mm, that may come. Right? Yeah, yeah because, because this is interesting. You know, yeah. going for the value and the speed of the product versus the standard view of, and this is the engineering guardrail we have as an example. Yeah, exactly. And then, I mean, we, so as, as one example, we have, uh, of course, a CTO in the company. Mm-hmm. Uh, his name is Christian. I love him. Uh, I don't think he's listening, but if he does, <laughs> I love you. Um, he, um, he has a very wide ranging mandate in, in encouraging collaboration, encouraging mm-hmm. discussing standards, etc. Uh, but the proof of a pudding is whether or not the product team chooses to use it. That's mm-hmm. the proof of the pr- pudding, right? I find this extremely refreshing and basically that how we understand understand, you know, the enterprise guardrails and technology and all that, you know, you are promoting, you are maybe investing, so you have more to support, but the proof is in the pudding if it's used. Yeah. And not, therefore, ultimately, there is, there needs to be a flexibility and, and some level of anarchy, I would argue. Yes. In order to also push the right standards. Yeah. And you want to encourage debate. I yes, think. and 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 right. I really uh, good, and I, and I don't want to. I want. I don't want to make it. I don't want to get into the kind of the 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 pros and cons of idea meritocracies because I think that's a rabbit hole that we may so not. What, what know, was that word? An idea meritocracy. What so is that? That's that's it's, cool. it's a way of governing where the best ideas win. But, okay, but it, but it begs the question: How do you judge what a good idea yes. is? So you're good back one. to subjectivity again, right? Good one. Yeah. So, but but I think what you want is the debate. I love the debates. I, mm. I think you know the the tension. There should be tension in the sense that if somebody has an idea, there should be a place for saying, "I I hear what you're saying." What about this problem here? What about that issue here? Now, if you have a setup where someone has the ability to overrule, which is not responsible for the outcome, uh, you don't create the room for debate, right? You create the room for where it becomes compliance driven. And, and I think you will lose on ideas if you do that. That's my and, sense. And, and there are so many things here. We are working on something right now. And, and, and it's just this fundamental balance, how you organize from the court topic of efficiency versus adaptability. Yes. So if you can, if you can strike that balance, good, good one. I mean, like, and this is the rabbit hole as we're going up an S curve, we're innovating, mm-hmm. we are going, becoming more mature. So it's also the, the, the idea of what we are chasing, we are chasing innovation, we are chasing growth. Mm-hmm. Now we, now it's plateauing. Now we're chasing efficiencies. Mm-hmm. 
But to always to think about efficiency versus adaptability, you can't have that without balance. You can't have it without the balance. Without the, uh, debate. I, with I the debate, debate. Yeah, exactly, debate. The, the other thing is that it, wherever you are on that S-curve, they're all exciting problems. Yeah, yeah, of course. And, and technically, they can be just as exciting. Exactly. We are, we are we're in a state of maturity in one of our products where it's, it's now about kind of automating the way we're onboarding customers, yeah. you know, getting efficiency out of those processes. And it's just as exciting as, as building it out, right? But isn't it the, the core topic then that you need to be super aligned as a whole organization where are we in our journey now to really understand are we here for growth and speed and hyperscaling that's a different ball game than now we're here for super automation and efficiency and scalability maybe i don't know so it's like so what i'm trying to say is as you're moving on the on, on the curve we need more adaptability sometimes and we need less adaptability in other areas. Yeah, and, and company of our, we've been around for a while now, right, since 2015. Um, so, you know, technically people would call us a scale-up, I guess. But I mean, we, we are um, in parallel, you know, working on fairly mature products, um, thinking about the efficiencies of onboarding and such as we talked about, but we're also discovering new products uh, or new ways of configuring our existing products. So I think as an... The, the thing, I, for me, I'm not sure that talking about the, the entire organization has to be one or the other is helpful. But if you look at that question in, more, in a higher resolution, it's more like the certain, certain products will have, or certain product teams will have certain priorities in certain, certain times. Yeah, makes total sense. But, but you need to find stability in something. And, and I believe personally that um, some reasonable stability in who's on the team is important. Mm. Not only for the product, but for the people on the team. Um, that I think can be quite important. It also has to do with knowledge and continuity. Yeah. Um, there were so many angles here we can go. I mean, just to add one more point, and I, I know a very controversial topic, both in Spotify Times and other companies, has been, you know, sure, you belong to a team. Uh, and as Spotify had this kind of, you know, matrix organization or reversed rotated matrix, you know, with the squads and chapters and whatnot. And, and the chapters was more functional. Mm -hmm. and, and you had the, yeah. And then you had the cross functional teams. But another question is really, how are you physically seated, ah. located in an office to, you know, promote the best type of atmosphere, productivity, joy? I, I know this is such a, hard topic to discuss <laughs> and and you perhaps don't have even offices these days so it's not even a question but do you have any thoughts from your McKinsey days perhaps in you know what is the best way to group people physically in an office well I I, I will probably not necessarily attribute these thoughts to my McKinsey time but I can okay. I can uh, you know uh, share uh, some more recent thoughts because this is uh, literally as we speak I mean February I think February 4th or something, Norway opened up. February 9th, we opened up. So, you know, yeah. it, it, this is where things are starting to unfold. And together with our uh, sort of uh, chief organization and people, uh, Officer Anne, uh, love you, Anne, as well. You're probably not listening to this. But we, th we thought about this a lot, right? And th there's, there is, uh, we have two offices. Uh, we have one office in Houston, one office in Oslo, mm -hmm. uh, fiscal offices. Um, what we saw during the pandemic, of course, is that um, people are able to not only work productively, but even more productively and be reasonably, you know, if, judging by the normal ways you measure these things, satisfied at work, mm. right? So productivity did at least not go down on, not on average. If I look, we don't measure things like ticket velocity or no, anything like no. that, but you can see it, right? Yeah. Uh, did at least not go down. In fact, we released some of our most prominent products in the middle of the pandemic 
um, and people were reasonably satisfied. Now, I believe still, although I don't have any numbers to back this up, I believe that there is a trade-off in, in building a cohesive culture. And mm -hmm. we don't know how to manage that yet. We don't know what the trick here is yet. No. Um, but what we see very clearly, and you've seen all the research as well, right? Um, the ability to offer hybrid and remote work seats is now a competitive advantage in the talent market. Yeah. Um, especially when you're hiring technical, um, technical staff. So, so. And, and, and we, we, we have been uh, in a super hot or overheated uh, talent market in data. Yeah, so we, we have the number of, we're lacking 70,000 software engineers in Sweden or whatever that number is. Yeah. And of course. I only need three. <laughs> uh, the, the point is, of course, then it's, it's the traditional, you know, is, is it a buyer's market or a seller's market right now yeah. as well, right? Well. So I don't know, but I think there are so many trade-offs here, but what I argue, if I can keep people super happy, super motivated, having fun and, you know, being able to solve their life puzzle, mm -hmm. I think that is probably going to create more efficiency than maybe. So it's a little bit like how much have you to lose or gain mm -hmm. in this game? And I think there are, there are, there are, my hypothesis is that there are, you probably have more to gain in, in productivity over here. So it's easy here to, that you stare on one KPI and you mm. sub-optimize. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I, I truly believe you're, you can, you can in some theory have a more efficient team, everybody sitting in the same room. Ideally get one team cross-functional and do the, do it physical, yeah. <laughs> you know, fantastic. Right. Yeah. But to what cost in other what, what is the opportunity cost of making that happen? So I think there are two. So I would agree with everything you said. I would add to that that I would put two assumptions in that and say that if these two assumptions are true, then everything you said holds true. Number one, everybody lives close to the office. Um, number two, uh, there are rules around interrupting each other during flow time. Mm -hmm. If those two are satisfied, I, I agree with what you said. Um, I think the reality is that people don't, don't live, live necessarily. No, and also you have, you know, People get, you know, they have families and they move out of town. Uh, and some some of our staff have one and a half hours, up to even two hours commute. So that's the opportunity cost. That's the opportunity cost. Yeah. Yeah. And if working a lot with Scania, and I worked before with Vattenfall and had my team in, in sort of uh, Berlin, Amsterdam and Stockholm, I mean, like some things make sense that we could do in Stockholm. Nice but the places. Other, yeah, but the other places simply don't make sense. We need to solve it somewhere else. And all of a sudden now, if I have people in Amsterdam, Berlin and Sweden, does it really matter if I put my software engineers in Poland? And I, does it really, you know, so all of a sudden we have other constraints, question, right? The, the constraints are different now. I, I fully agree. And the other thing I think, uh, this is uh, the way I experienced it is that the, the, the talent market went, you know, wholesale global during the pandemic. Um, <laughs> so also all of a sudden you have the ability for people to pick jobs anywhere. Um, and, and to be, and, and even to pick two jobs, right. Um, and be able to do them to both well, because you choose to, um, and that is just something that's just very different. I don't, I don't think we know how to, I don't think, I think, I, I think, think there, there, there is some sort of paradigm shift here. And we, we were talking about this a lot and like how, which uh, part of the industry will go back completely to normal. And we, we, we have had a lot of rants around the conference industry sort of where we are trying to push the envelope of making more real building a digital experience or like a long, bigger experience. And we see, you know, some dinosaurs simply want to go back to how it was. Right. <laughs> and it's like, 
I'm not sure that's going to fly, but we'll see. I, this, this is a rabbit hole I went into and I'll try not to drag you all into it. Right. But I, 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 I came across this article, uh, which is not, it was not, not a new article. I can't remember the author now, but it, it was an investigation of how, how does, how did we end up in offices? And I, it, it was very interesting, right? So it, it, it comes from the fact, it's come from the industrial revolution, of course. All of a sudden, you know, you had to move from the farms into the city and then you were actually physically required to work in the plant, on the plant, right? Or in the, in the mine. Yeah. And, and that is a tradition that carried over into the services industry. But if you think about it, um, you know, it's a bit of a weird setup, right? So you, you're, you're, you're grouped together with people you did not choose to be with um, or kind of artificially in a, in a space to do work together. Uh, and you do it for a very big portion of your time. So, so now I'm paraphrasing the paper. And it was, a, again, I'm not, let's get out of that rabbit hole. But I, but I found it kind of interesting. How, how come we're sitting in offices? But there are, I mean, you have to agree that there are some good office or pros with having an office. Oh, for sure. And, I mean, the, I think one of the, the really core things is the coffee machine effect in some oh, way. It's right? so good. I mean, if you set up meetings, you usually have a predefined agenda. You speak about what you are supposed to speak about. But to find these kind of informal kind of discussions, you know, how do you do that in a non, in a non physically located way? Yeah. Is there a way to do that in a hybrid setting as well? We've done some experimentations. Um, so first, I just want to agree with what you said. And if I came across this, if I'm, I'm anti being in the office, then I should kind of retract that impression yes. immediately. I'm not. Um, I'm, I should say I'm an agnostic. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of introvertedly in, inclined. So, of course, I don't mind having space for myself. Now, having said that, I think there are a few things that we want to keep uh, that we learned during the pandemic. For example, discipline in meetings. Um, the discipline and how we ran meetings, how we prepared for meetings, how we documented meetings went up for sure. Yeah. I think uh, so too. Yeah. And people are on time. Yeah. I also think that we, we learned something around, uh, etiquette for zoom and teams meetings, yeah. right. which I think we should keep. Although we always still struggle with the, you know, technical setup in the beginning yeah, of meetings. I know, isn't that yes. weird? Still, yeah. still we've come so far. But, but the whole etiquette of meetings, yeah. that is a metric that completely went up. Yes. Because we had so many of them yeah. and we, in the retro from one day, you know, when you we sit the whole day, okay, we can't do the same shit one hour later in the next meeting with the same people. We need to, you know, yeah. the iterative effects worked. It did, it really did work. And I think that's something I would like to keep. Uh, something I would like to bring back is the coffee machine effect that you're talking yeah. to, uh, talking about. Definitely. The other thing I would like to bring back is the opportunity to just get to know people beyond the formalized Zoom meeting. I actually think, and this is a, this is a speculation, so I, I, I don't know if this is absolutely true. I'm inclined to think that uh, some of our engineers that are used to pair programming and found the ways of doing that through the tooling we have, they kept some of that going. Uh, but for me, it, it felt, and for many of my other colleagues, it kind of got a bit lonely at times, I have to say. Yeah. Um, you know. Because ultimately, we are also physical human beings, and we are a social being. Yes. And there is some merit to how do you keep the humanism and the social um, welfare mm. if you don't meet anyone? Yeah, and we are different for sure. I mean, some people actually uh, get very lonely and they are not you know, being as happy as they are if they actually can work with people physically. Right? Exactly. And that, that brings me to another thing that um, I found really interesting. And that is there is a certain, there was a certain type of personality that fared very well when we're all in the office all the time. 
Mm. And there's another sort of personality that has now fared better than ever exactly. before. Yes. So we saw people that previously were sitting, maybe hiding a bit in the corner, all yeah. of a sudden stepping up, acting more as leaders because they were acting through communication channels or right. media that were more comfortable to them. Yeah. That was really interesting to that see. That is super cool. Uh, and uh, yeah. And the other thing we noticed is that we've, we've been serving a bit and also reading research on um, how and when do which types of people want to go back to the office and what they're going to use the office for. Mm. There's a big variety here. There are some yes. people that say that I, I, I really wouldn't mind never going to the office. This is a small portion, right? Mm. And then are people, but then are people saying, I really want to be in the office because my apartment is just not conducive to mm. you know, doing work or, you know. And some people don't have the self-discipline to don't work Don't have the self-discipline, right? They're on the TV and they, you know. Circumstances, which are just, just life circumstances, yes. right? Um, and then there are other people that, that, that are sort of somewhere in the, in the middle. Um, but what is very clear across is that one thing we do need, and going back to the original question you had, one thing that we do need to do, we are experimenting with, is, is creating more of happenings. So, so kind of Informal so, socially, socially, socially um, inclined events that bring people into the office, like oh, right. lunch and quiz, just simple things like that. Brought oh, yeah. 17 people back to Oslo office the, the other oh, week and it was cool. so much fun. It sounds like a bit, it sounds a bit timid. Is, is this going to be? But then pulled off beautifully and everybody had lots of fun. Mm -hmm. And it brings people together. It gives something, and you get to know your, your new colleagues. So, mm -hmm. we've been hiring in a situation that's, where, you that's know, another one. never met the people physically that I've yeah, yeah. been hiring. You're cool. He, yeah. uh, one thing that you're missing in this is the, the sense of belonging. Ah, yes. Mm -hmm. Right? Because uh, uh, we are doing uh, some conferences on people analytics. Mm -hmm. And this is actually, so the productivity is going up. Resignation is going up, but the sense of belonging is actually going down. Yeah. Right. And that is why we have offices because you can speak, you can innovate without having meetings. You can have a purpose of, uh, you know, waking up in the morning, go meeting other people and then align your beliefs with somebody else. That's why mm -hmm. you are, then you are, um, joining a company as well. It's not because of the work you're joining as well because of the purpose and the image yeah. and uh, all of these other things. So <coughs> we cannot just basically take that on a side. No, um, you're right. But there is a variety for sure. So I think I, 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 I fully agree to that. And I, I would, I would expect, although I, again, I don't know if this is true, but I would expect that one of the reasons that the, this big quit or great resignation that we're talking about now was the consequence of having sat behind your laptop for two years. And that, that sense of belonging or loyalty uh, in relation to just switching jobs maybe and getting some other things that you were looking for in life, that trade-off just switched mm. quite fast. And and, yeah. and, and, and and you know changing jobs is less about moving to a new city, moving to a new environment. It's basically logging on to a different Zoom link. Right. But, yeah, actually, uh, the, the, the whole sort of... Um, how do you build up the barrier to entry or the barrier to change was disappearing because as you said, yeah. I, I had built up this mental picture of the effort or the risk to switch jobs. And that really went down in it, terms of practicality, like what you said. And again, I, I don't want to come across as like, I'm like the glass half full guy all the time <laughs> here, but, but what I will say as a, at least for us, healthy reaction to this was if, if, if the reason to be at a company at our company, for example, if that reason is no longer how great the office is, we need to go back to the original purpose of why we're here. So, so working on that, that's, it's really become important to try and come back to articulating what are we here for mm. and, and to kind of create that belonging, which ideally would transcend physically where you're at. Mm. And let's get back to Arundo very soon. But before we do that, perhaps we should close off also the uh, McKinsey time, the, the small time of 17 years. Oh. And, and let me just perhaps ask a bit difficult question, but I think a lot of people would be interested in hearing this because you, collected a lot of knowledge 
a wealth of knowledge about, you know, uh, consultant management uh, skills in some way, management consultant skills. And, okay, so if you were to perhaps list the top three, five uh, misconceptions that the C-suite people have in how to run a business, what would you say they are? Wow. The top three misconceptions for how to run a business. That you had to correct, correct in some way. Or try Are to you thinking about during my McKinsey days yes, or the yes, things? Yes. So I, one thing that I kept coming back to, and this is actually related to what we talked about before, is the notion of breaking the silos. Um, and mm-hmm. actually, <clears throat> if you think about the last four or five decades of different managerial approaches and frameworks for achieving change, yeah. and you can go back to the using the stopwatch on mm. the, you know, um, on the automotive, um, assembly line. Yeah. And then you can go into business process management and then you can go into the Toyota production system in lean. And then you can go into, you know, you can, you can continue that journey. And what they all had in common was the, um, was sort of the, the approach of looking across kind of disregarding the functional setup, disregarding the organizational setup and just watching what was going on and documenting mm. with as much data as you could the way things worked and, but, and then daring to take the consequences of what you found. Um, and, and I think, and, and, and I think, I don't know if I would construe this as a misconception, but I, I would, uh, I would say that many companies have underestimated the amount of, you know, change to incentive structures, uh, that may be needed in order to achieve that cross-functional change. Um, right. Because so pe- incentives pe- in what way? How can you build incentives to break the silos? Well, we're going to go back to the first T-shirt that you authored, yeah. which is "I believe in the goodness of people." Uh, and what I mean by that, <clears throat> sorry, what I mean by that is, I don't think I, I think it's a rare case that any person would act um, in malice. Right. So, so if if you're responsible for a part of a company's uh, organization, I think it's it's a rare case that you are deliberately acting maliciously or unproductively. I I think you have an incentive system around you somehow. Mm. It can be a formal incentive system, but it can also just be a culture. It can also be the colleagues. You watch how they act around you, but there is a framework that, that, that awards a certain behavior. That framework has to change. And often you have to change many pieces of that framework in order for you to actually there to make the change. And I think often organizations underestimate that Mm. because they over rely on the logic. Oh, and, and, but this is so true, uh, holds so true in my ears, uh, especially if you've been in, in, in larger enterprises, you have very different agendas, KPIs, and sometimes even competing mandates that needs to be balanced. And therefore the incentive systems in the different parts of the organization are there to achieve different things. Yes. And the challenge is that we are trying to, in, in all our best efforts, get that out. But I, I give the example, you know, large organization, we, we want to <coughs> innovate and we, we, we need to be really digital all this. At the same time, we need to, we, we should have a KPI that minimizes FTE in engineering and data. Yeah. You know, of course they, these are competing, right? Yes. And, and there we will have friction. Yes. It's simple as that, right? So, so here we are trying to fix data and AI and be, be more, be more, organized like that. And, and, and I've said that before, and, and this is really my home turf where I'm trying to sort out. When you go in this direction, you're not going to get to the value creation if the organization, the steering 
is not aligned with this. And we, we talked about how we organize the team. This is one topic, right? Mm. And then, but I think, I think you nail it because if you think about the incentive structure and the mandates, they come from a certain organizational construct that you did and some, you know, objectives for that. Yeah. And if they don't align with what, you know, minimizes friction, let's say that, let's yeah. call it that. Yeah. But any good tips on that? How do you change the incentives? How do you have clear incentives for people to move in the right direction, to break the silos and whatnot? Can you give some, do you have some examples of how to actually do that? Well, um, I, um, no, I, well, I, I don't, again, uh, all right, let me, let me give you one or two ideas at mm. least. Uh, yeah. these are not novel in any sense, but yeah, I'll, no, no, this no, is just no. stuff that I've experienced. I think you need to you need in some cases, and this is not right for all organizations, but in some cases you actually need to do something that you could kind of call an affirmative action. Sometimes mm. this is called a digital incubator. Or sometimes it's called a central team that is responsible for driving some change. Right. But, but you create this this external change. You, you create an event that sort of forces people into this uncomfortable area of thinking differently. Right. Uh, I think that is necessarily for the discovery. Yeah. And if you do it right, you manage to do it through self-discovery. Mm-hmm. And this goes to my next point, which is <clears throat> you can change incentives and, and formally you can rewire the organization. Um, you can try to act differently to inspire a change in culture, but you can't make a person want something if they don't want it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but if, if but a person is more likely to want to do something if that next step is familiar. So that's why I'm saying self-discovery. So if you mm-hmm. if you yourself discover somebody's giving you advice, perhaps if somebody's showing you a new cool tool, and you you see that there's something familiar here. I know my area of responsibility. This actually builds on my normal experience of what I do at work, right? Mm -hmm. So if I'm an operator of a part of a chemical plant, for example, and I see a new tool that speaks my language and actually shows me some new information that I otherwise would go through great pains of achieving, it is more likely that that level of familiarity will lead me to using this new tool than if it it comes... Yeah. From from left, right, right. Yeah. So, so if someone comes up with innovative changes by themselves, it's much more efficient than it comes like forced upon them. Is that what you're saying? I think it's more likely that they're going to adopt something that they right. feel like, yeah, I've kind of one one part of it is discovering yourself, but the other one is that it feels somewhat familiar. It's not it's not mm-hmm. forcing you to go. And I'm not speaking for all individuals now, mm-hmm. right? So there are people that love the notion of something new and something. Depending on which industry you're in. Mm. Um, now, we as, uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying that this is a segue to Arundo necessarily, but we work with heavy industrial companies. Mm. Uh, so the likelihood that you're going, the likelihood that you're going to find someone who, is, who loves change mm. is smaller for the very natural reason that right. you, 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 these are very uh, critical systems and processes to run. You do not want to introduce change too often. Mm. Or you, 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 I mean, like if you work with heavy assets or critical uh, you know, systems like that, there is a certain rigor to how you do change. Oh, absolutely. So, so, so the point is that that brings a culture and a way of working that is self-persevering, I would argue, versus yeah. in another industry uh, where experimentation has no real risk in the same way, yeah. you, you, you can have another culture. That's it, right? So for example, if you are providing advice to your customers on which next product to buy, it's it's okay if you if you recommend the wrong product. It's not okay if you recommend the wrong action in a chemical processing plant. 
But still, I think experimentation and innovation is really hard, even when there is little risk. I mean, I, I, of course, it's harder when you do have a high risk and, and there's a lot of cost and time involved in actually making the change. But even perhaps for digital companies like Spotify or whatnot, it can be really hard to take advantage of all the ideas that comes up. Mm -hmm. I know this was a big frustration. You know, we tried to do so many things with hack weeks and hack days and, and one after the other. And so many people did come up with awesome ideas, but to actually make them go to production or actually come to value for the company was super, super hard. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and but one, I, I, one, one, just to build on that, one thing that I am seeing um, in, in, and I think this might be more, the norm among engineers or people with an engineering background is it's easier to poke holes in ideas mm -hmm. than to yes. get into the merits of them. And I think that, I think the, <clears throat> our ability, you know, if we take an engineering mindset, our ability to see the weaknesses in an argument or in, a, in, in the way a solution is being formulated, that is a strength. It is a real strength and it, it's so useful. But it also becomes a, a weakness and a problem when we overuse that. Uh, so I see so many times there's a very great sort of, there's an innovative idea coming from someone. Mm. And then, you know, immediately you find 15 ways that it won't work. Yeah, exactly. We've done that, try that. Done that, try that. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. have this kind of destructive, you know, non-constructive kind of uh, uh, rhetoric. It's yeah. so much easier and it's safer because you're usually right. But yeah. the really hard and valuable thing is if you do come up with constructive ideas. Yeah. And I don't know where this uh, this notion came from, but um, even if it feels safer not to do something, that is actually a risky move sometimes too. Yeah. So 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 one thing that I think is important to do is when, when the decision is not to do something, to actually assess what is the risk of that decision. Yes. Um, because there's there's kind of inherent yeah, risk. Uh, in we have, and we have talked about early on the, on the pod, and I think this is almost... I'm not sure if it's a Swedish culture. I mean, like th there is clearly a culture that if I didn't, if I, if I didn't make a yes decision here, or if I didn't make any decisions, I'm home free. Yeah. And it's like this, hold on, you forgot that your decision, you, by not acting on this, you actually made a decision and that decision actually is no to change. Yes. And, and, but we have some sort of challenge here, I think in larger organizations where, uh, where it's to some degree, um, culture okay to make, to not make decisions. Mm. And this is sort of not seen as you, you know, as you, you get away with doing nothing as not making it. As, do you see what I mean? Right. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. So we, we, how do we basically hold ourselves accountable for doing nothing? Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and that is a tricky one that I think, uh, Cool. And, and let's try to climb out of this rabbit hole a bit. But, you know, I think you, we if you go back a bit to the top, like, misconceptions, um, unless you had some some strong ending point there. But no, I, it would be fun to just try to, you know, capture your, extract your knowledge a bit here from McKinsey days. Uh, and one is, you know, if I try to summarize, you know, breaking the silos in, in some way, trying to have the right incentives to actually do promote that kind of behavior and in that way also promote innovation and, and change. Yeah, the ultimate change, thing, right? we have the silos, not because people are malice, because we have incentive <laughs> systems that mm. put them there. Yeah, informal or formal, yes. or, or experienced at least. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Well, if you want the second one, I can offer a second one, yeah, and then please. maybe we can close that out. And that is finding the right balance between having a, a, a good strategy versus being ready for change when it happens. And, and what I often say is that if, if I had the choice of being able to see around the corner, 
mm-hmm. versus being able to change for whatever appears. Yeah. I would rather put my money on being able to change for whatever appears. And striking a balance there is also something where... This is profound. Well, 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 no, but I think that there is sometimes an over... And of course, as a management consultant, we did a lot of strategies. Mm-hmm. But we also did a lot of work on getting peop- getting organizations ready for change. But I think adaptability is... Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you can go back in, in evolutionary theory and say adaptability is why we're here, right? Fitness. So I think um, I would say that one maybe not misconception, but on the balance of where you put your money, I would say that many companies maybe put more money on trying to see the future versus being ready for it when it arrives. <laughs> if you know what I mean. Absolutely. Uh, but let me still challenge that a bit, <laughs> uh, just to clarify a bit what we mean. I mean, for one thing, you want to have a long-term vision in some way, and at least yes. know that this is where we want to be in a couple of years. But... Uh, so if you go only like incremental change approach where you say, this is where we are today. If we move this small baby step in this direction, that's a good thing. Perhaps adapting potentially to the current situation that we have. But if we only do incremental change, wouldn't that also be a risk? Then? Yeah, I think you're, you're, you're spot on. And let's let's get the high resolutions out there, mm-hmm. right? Because uh, I made a joke once that, you know, if, if, you, if you go fully agile, mm-hmm. all of a sudden, you know, you're you know, telecom companies in the restaurant business before mm-hmm. you know it, right? Because people will just you do kind of take an incremental step in the direction that feels good at the time, right? right. And that's an over-exaggeration, of course, but yeah. you're absolutely right. I think, uh, and it goes back to what we said before, having a clear view on why are we here and what are we trying to achieve? And then you need guardrails. Mm-hmm. So certain things we're not going to do as a company, for example, mm-hmm. right? So having that clear, but then you need to allow a bit of experimentation and freedom in terms of how are we going to get there. Yeah. And then I think, you know, fostering a culture of adaptability is, is, is quite important, but you're absolutely, we can't forget completely where we're headed. If you don't see, if you don't see point B, yeah. people are just going to wander around, yeah. right? So yeah. clear view on where are we, A, clear view on where we're heading B, and then you just get a culture that can take the obstacles away as they, as, as, as they were thrown at you while you're traversing <laughs> that. I have to make just a small uh, Elon Musk quote again. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think he phrased it really nicely because he, in some way he said, you know, he always had a very clear mission and vision with, for example, SpaceX, which is that they want to go to Mars and, and they want to do that as quickly as they can. And then for every change they make, if they're going to change a small screw in some rocket somewhere, um, they or he thinks, will this small change in this type of screw or this other type of screw actually make us come to Mars faster or not? Mm -hmm. This is the type of thinking you should have. So every small incremental change should move in a direction of a long-term vision. Would you agree with this? Is Elon Musk wrong? Um, I, um, I like, so I... I, I, I think I like the direction that that argument is taking. Um, I think it can be overused, so mm. it can lead to a bit of paralysis because um, mm. you may overthink every small step. I yeah. think that's the risk of it. Yeah. But I, but I think um, and this is an maybe more philosophical on a more philosophical note. But if in hindsight we talk about disruptions, talk about change, but most of this happened increment in incremental steps. Um, change is rarely of the sort that you wake up one morning and you end up, oh, what this is, oh, wow, I can do this. No, it happened over 15 years, right? Mm-hmm. So, so, so I think the notion of change and disruption um, is a hindsight construct in many ways. Um, mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm making this unnecessarily black and white for the sake of the argument. But, but, but uh, in, in some ways here, I, I agree with the first notion of uh, adaptability. 
And, but um, I, I'm, I see it a little bit different here. So, and I, I used to have a, had a coming from a day of nothing and working on exactly similar topics for a keynote in, in the Data Nation Summit in Dubai next, oh, on the 7th, I guess. Yeah. So we're working on, we, we're working, collecting the research we're doing into a keynote right now. And we are trying to understand what's the essence of what we're working on. Mm. And we are, we are right now talking about um, the difference of, you know, the, the economics of scale or the, uh, the, uh, versus the economics of learning. And, and then we come into this top topic around efficiency versus adaptability. And Michael Klingweil, the guy I'm working with, he did his PhD trying to understand what's the ultimate balance of heterogeneity versus homogeneity in an organization. Mm with a fundamental topic of how do you optimize the balance between efficiency and adaptability. Mm. Now in this, in this context now, adaptability, incremental efficiency, incremental improvements on the curve you're on, that is more innovation for efficiency. Mm. Uh, versus, uh, versus adaptability is, is maybe more profound, um, you know, bigger changes. Now, the argument we are discussing now is that you know, this is the conversation we had. It's like, if you think about innovation right now, in order to be efficient on the curve you're at, mm. and we are putting this in the context of 2022 and the rapid technology change, data, AI software, mm. and ultimately you need to be very careful now how you innovate that you actually don't stifle yourself with trying to make old technology efficient mm. rather than there is another way of doing this with, with AI, which it has a 10x improvement on this. So adaptability for me now goes in a, in a slightly different light that I need to have a learning organization, the economies of learning and the economies of seeing what's out there and then adapting to it and incorporating that. So basically, well, we are doing this, uh, we're trying to automate uh, our financial processes. Well, the way we have done it before with an ERP system, Maybe we shouldn't continue building all the shit inside the ERP system. Maybe there are other technologies. There here. was a time and a place for that. There was a time and a place where this was the shit. And but maybe if you learn and adapt from other topics, so so adaptability for me comes um, with a purpose in mind. You know, the long term mm. purpose is, becomes really key. Yes. But how can I now sort of ten x? How can I be innovative in in a way to? clearly pivot on my approaches. Do you see what I mean with that? For, for yeah, me, adaptability I, comes yeah. quite high up on this, that from, from economies of scale and, and the, we organize for efficiency and this is the industrial revolution gone to the later part of the S curve. Now we're into a new macro life cycle data, AI software first kind of thing. And we need to rethink everything. And then it goes so super fast. It's a different way. I think the con I like the notion of the economics of learning. I never heard I heard economics of skill before, but economics of learning. I really like that notion. I might add a few things to what you said. Uh, one is, um, I'm thinking where, if you think about this, at, sort of on an atomic level, where does the adapt, where does adapting, where does the adapting actually happen? Mm. So organizationally, who is adapting to what? And I'm thinking delegation is a very important part of what you're saying. Yes, I think the, you're. So there is a bit of it. Let's say it. Um, Tradition, as a, as a, as a leader or as an owner of a company, having the courage, if you will, to delegate more and more of the, th that decision making that needs to happen or to try new things 
down into the team. So as close to the problem as possible. As close to the problem and the competence to solve that particular problem. That's exactly right. So if you, so this goes back to the vision, right? So if you, if you, if you're clear on the problem that you're going to solve and, and actually if you look at the rate of innovation in technology, the way you can use data, the amount of data, the types of data, the complexity of data that's available to you, it's going to change. It keeps changing. I suggest that the one thing that is reasonably stable over time is the problem. Yes. The nature of the problems we're solving. Um, how so we solve it is it's changing all the time right so if you can if you can keep the vision clear this is the problem that this group of people are trying to solve and they're really excited about it and you give them the power the encouragement and the resource to experiment and learn uh, i think that's at least part of getting to where you're, you're I, I think yeah. you're spot on because we are talking about the new organizational paradigm which is a the fractal organization so how do you build a mesh of the different units that needs to have their clear purpose the problem now becomes how we don't make them into silos, but we have what we talk about, the strategy to execution uh, path, mm. the, the vertical path, we call that navigation. And then the orchestration, the horizontal, how can we reuse and harvest in between teams yeah. and how can we create a purpose? So so this becomes something else, right? The yeah. Tayloristic organizational or even the matrix doesn't really solve this. It's more federated. It's more federated and it leads to a different rabbit hole. Um, which we have been done doing a lot of thinking about, well, not thinking, acting around, I would say, which is creating unique technology IP that you can reuse. So that's also part of this, right? Because you know, exactly. you want to build harvest things. and reuse. You want to harvest, harvest. Good, thank you. Harvest Thank and reuse. You, you cannot you, forget harvest. No, but yeah, exactly. And the thing is, when do you harvest? Do you harvest after you built it, or do you har or do you try to build it first without knowing whether you can harvest it? This is you know the, huge. Yeah, you know, it's what we what we at least have found is that. And I don't know if there's a, I don't think there's an organization, to, but if you, if, if you are lucky enough as we are, at least at this point in time, to have individuals that are solving a problem, having in mind the way they're solving it, there are bits and pieces of what we're doing now that might be abstracted afterwards. But we're not going to worry about that now. We're going to solve this problem right here, right now. Afterwards, we're going to see if we can abstract and extract something, re something, something reusable here. I think... At least if you're a, if you're a fast moving startup, I personally believe that that is a, a very useful approach because you, if you're able to keep those two thoughts in your head at the same time, because you can go after the customer, the product, the money, strictly speaking, that yeah. you need in order to show the growth while at the same time thinking and allowing yourself a, a week after the final retro, okay, can we, what can we abstract out of this? Yeah. So uh, you're, you're spot on. We are, we are, we are drawing this on a very simple vertical axis versus uh, horizontal axis. And we are putting the value creation money wise on the vertical action. And we're putting the data AI software DNA on the, on these axis. Mm -hmm. And then we are trying to find the vehicles in the pro product first, but what can we harvest and reuse yeah. and extrapolate on that? Some, but what, what is the governance? You're, sometimes you're surprised. <laughs> but, but then what's the glue that allows people to harvest in between teams? You have oh, said goosebump for a long time. Yeah, 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 That's weird. Yeah, yeah, okay. Cool. You want to keep going? <laughs> I want. He wants to get no, going. We I, have I to, even, I we have to stay here. finish to the next step in your journey as well. And um, but this was a, some really interesting topics. I think I'm still frustrated about not getting into technical topics. But let's this continue. is technical. Ah, but this is no, organizational this is, this is technical topics. We we'll get there. Awesome. But at some point, and for some reason, you actually made a big switch from McKinsey. And uh, did something else. How did that come about? Well, I had the privilege of spending my last three years at McKinsey building a um, 
or uh, starting the build-up of a global digital government practice. So it was um, starting the um, establishment of a capability to serve governments around the world on topics related to digitization. Yes. And what happened then is that I, I had a, a, a fantastic time. I got to travel and, and work with governors in New Zealand, in Australia, in the UK, in the US, in the Middle East, all around Europe, of course, in Sweden. Yeah. Met great people, people that really sort of found themselves in this you know, very complex governance that often, you know, is the case when you think about public sector. Mm. Um, and what type of, of uh, government uh, organizations did you work with? Oh, so it was a, a mix of federal and state level. Yeah. Um, and uh, um, I am prohibited by confidentiality clauses to name the names, but, okay. but typically these were, uh, you know, social insurance agencies. Yeah. Um, typically the way, where if you, not typically the way I chose to think about where to try and move the digital topic forward inside governments is again, where does money come out and where does money come in? So you have tax and insurance. Mm. So a lot of work with tax agencies, finance departments, um, and also, and, the, and, and then of course money out is welfare insurance, right. uh, lending, public lending. Yeah. And then one third additional one, which is inspiring growth in the economy by, for example, simplifying the way you start a business or right. simplifying the way you incubate your kind of things as well. Uh, but also even taking away bureaucracy for that, that's the aside. Hey, dig, dig, you know, digitizing tax declarations for right. big companies. Yeah. Name, name one place where that has worked out, right? Except mm. maybe Estonia. So, so anyway, very sorry for that. Uh, so, but in doing so, I rekindled my passion for technology in a very profound way. Because not only did I get to meet these these very innovative and, and sort of grand thinking government officials or you know, public sector servants that um, wanted to make, make change happen, we talked a lot about how to do that. But I also got to meet a lot of startups, um, and I hadn't I hadn't right. met the startup for, for for a decade and a half almost, right? Mm. And I just felt this culture, and I, I just kind of. It, reminded myself, hang on, this is what I wanted to do back in 2000. That's, that's your is, finance software engineering this, company. This, yeah, this is this is what I wanted to, yeah. So actually, so you could say I did a big change, but I can kind of close the loop. That's I, why I think so about it. So it was a nice continuation in some way. Yeah, it was yeah. A, a, the, the, the two, three year of plan B, which mm. became plan A, yeah. and then coming back again to uh, my passion. And, and, oh, and yeah. The circle is closed. Yeah, <laughs> but it... Uh, the personal angle here, how, how was the fear factor or, or you know, you know, out of your comfort zone or what, was it just, yep, this is a no brainer. Let's go for it. Or how was your mental, uh, picture here or your thinking as, as an individual? Um, there were a, some healthy therapist bills associated with this. <laughs> uh, and, and that's not even a joke. Uh, that is the, that is the truth. Uh, no, it was difficult. It was very difficult. Yeah. I mean, regardless of what you do, if you spend, and even if it's as dynamic as being in consulting, if you've done it for almost two decades, it does something to you. you, you you're, uh, you this you're, your, who you are, maybe? Yeah, you, you, is this course, who I am? Of course, you're yeah. technically rewired, right? So yeah. you're chemically and biologically rewired for, for, a certain, for a certain context. And I had to unwire that, which you know, technically can, so I had to find new wires that were stronger. Yeah. What I would say, though, is the Swiss Trarundo was made easier by the fact that it was founded by one of the one of my most, most amazing colleagues that I ever met at McKinsey, so Tor Jakob Ramsoy, who founded it only 2015. Oh, and, and were you part of founding it as well, or was it? No, no. Okay. I, I, I joined as a seed investor. Yeah. Uh, oh, so okay. I, I considered myself having been part of the family, let's say, from the beginning, yeah. uh, but very passively, right? Uh, but when Arundel then raised their, they did a series A in 2017, and Toyomo mm -hmm. said, hey, it's the time for you to become a bit more active. Uh, and that coincided with me having a bit of this sort of, you know, 
um, you know, reignited fashion. George Chris. <laughs> you said it. Um, having a bit of a George Chris and, uh, and uh, the middle age crisis. Yeah, yeah I, I was joking. Isn't it beauty? Well, you know, some it landed well. It landed well. Yeah. No. So that is. So that that, that made the switch uh, a bit less dramatic because I I knew that there was a family waiting for me that mm. I already know that I would I would enjoy being with. Cool. And let's go just back to the basic. What does Arundo do? We build industrial analytics software. Um, so in a nutshell, our thesis is that there is an enormous amount of telemetric data being generated and having been generated for a long time in the heavy right. asset industries. And our thesis is that you can make better use of that. You can inform your actions and your decisions on how to run that more sustainably and more efficiently by using that data. And um, in the big, in the early years, we did a lot of POCs, of course, yeah. as everyone does. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many hundred sort of data science studies we did on in different types of data for different types of equipment. And experimented with becoming a platform company. Uh, first was a, an algorithm company, you know, mm-hmm. find a magic algorithm. Uh, kind of, and then, you know, building a platform that would allow other data scientists to wire data up. Uh, so more like an MLOps effort, mm-hmm. if you will, although that word didn't exist back then. And, and now we're, we're sort of, we're solidly, you know, and an product company. We figured out that what we are good at, what we think is necessary are applications that allows technicians and process engineers to, to understand and act differently. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, not in the platform game, but in the product game. Oh, we have so many. Let's, let, you keep this one now because we, I want okay. to really understand what, what that means. Mm-hmm. This sounds great. Well. And I have many angles here that we can pursue, but let, let's really unwrap it first. Mm-hmm. So industrial analytical software mm-hmm. and being able to take advantage of all the telemetry data or whatnot that, that do exist. Can you just, just give some example of how does that really work? Sure. I mean, uh, one example would be um, cranes. And, and this is a, a topical example because I learned this morning that um, uh, one of the customers that I'm about to talk publicly about, McGregor, um, mm-hmm. we are part of the... Um, technology ecosystem around uh, an application they've built, which is called OnWatch Scout. What one's going to? OnWatch Scout. OnWatch uh, So Scout, that application yes. allows uh, operators of cranes to consume KPIs and, and different types of uh, data-driven insights. to As in their operation. In their operations. We're talking about offshore cranes, 450 mm-hmm. ton, two kilometers wire for offshore services installations like wind farms, etc. Uh, it allows them to to figure out whether to run the crane differently under certain circumstances. Wind. Um, Wind, heave, compensation, yes. there, there are hydraulic systems. Um, and it, so it allows to extend the lifetime and avoid, you know, uh-huh. breakdowns, which can be costly. Mm. Um, so that's an example, which is quite concrete. So do you, are we speaking about like make, making the company more data-driven in terms of the product or in terms of more how the business is run, like a BI per purpose or what type of analytical software are you speaking about here? So maybe we can start, there are three, there are many different angles. So maybe, maybe we can start from the top, right? So mm. the thing that we are obsessed about is improving the operations. We talked about latching onto the problem. So we tried to do that. So the problem we're trying to solve is to help engineers, technicians, process engineers to run their part of a process or their equipment more safely, more efficiently, more sustainably. That's right. the problem we're trying to solve. Right. How we do that is the thesis which is that we're a data data analytics company. Yeah. So our part of our contribution to this problem is going to be, is there signal patterns, insights in the data under leverage today in resolving that mission? Right. Um, so, so, the, so the way the product w- works then is um, 
Now it might become a bit technical. Yeah, please. That's, cool. that's, that's what he's waiting, 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 waiting for that. Okay, so <laughs> there was a top-down version. You try him and then he will take you further until mm. you stop. Okay, so so now I'll, tell, I'll tell the story from the equipment up instead, right? Yeah, okay. Uh, so the capabilities we've built is um, the ability to uh, extract data from the edge, very source, so mm. control system, PLM yeah. or DCS. Yeah. Typically, SCADA system. Yeah, so typical sensors that is typically now SCADA is one type of uh, very high standard or normal standard. That is one standard, right? Typical time series data. It's all time series data. It's time series data. With some interesting caveats, which could be another rabbit hole to go into. Could you take some more, you know, other types of data in a, you know, in a dashboard with that as well? Some images of, you know, how the crane is looking or whatnot. We can get there. We can get there. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you the, I'll tell you the, the ninety-nine percent of the time path, and we can get into the one percent time of the path. But no, so so we have one piece of software that allows you to extract that data from the systems, and then. Uh, run models and do pre-processing at the edge. Right. Um, and that is, so we, we built that because we had to. Mm-hmm. So again, you can ask, why are you in the business of building out an ingester, a local piece of software mm-hmm. with all the pains associated with that, right. if your mission is over here to do this? So we had to. It's the value chain. You need to sort out the value chain. The data value chain. And we realized that uh, in many cases, these equipments are in very rugged environments at sea, Mm. There's no satellite connectivity necessarily consistent to being available. And if there is, people would rather watch Netflix mm. than send, you know, <laughs> one gigabyte of sensor data every hour. Yeah. Um, I'm not kidding. That is, you know, people <laughs> will pull the network out to, to get better connectivity so they can FaceTime with their kids. This is a real yes. thing, right? Yeah, yeah. So we had to have it's some so way funny. of storing data mm. consistently and reliably, reliably uh, under all circumstances. Right. And when we started our journey, there wasn't such a thing out there. Um, so we, we, we built that part of the product. Mm-hmm. So that is what that does. And in order for, there are some analytical algorithms that require a performance, in particular latency, yeah. that makes um, a cloud pattern very difficult. Right. Uh, cloud so pattern, I mean, moving the data to a public cloud and back and, and so forth. The latency of sending it to the cloud, consoling it and back. Then back again. So for example, um, one thing we worked on was um, f- forecasting electricity production from wind and solar farms. Mm-hmm. And the particular customer requirement at this point was that the model had to run every six seconds and it consumed 30 minutes of historical data across 40 tags. Mm. So in this case, there's no way you're going to be able to send that to a cloud and back again. Yeah. So, so for that purposes, with the, the way we built up this local piece of software is so you can run any type of, you know, it's basically Docker containers, right? If you want to get mm. really into the technology Please here. But go further. Yeah, because so, so basically what it allows you to do is uh, our data scientists can train a model um, in the office or at, no, now they're at home, <laughs> back to the office. And, and then, uh, and then push it down to the edge. Technically, mm-hmm. the edge is phoning home and seeing in the registry if there's something to do. And then it kind of brings downloads right. and models if the connectivity. So you have CICD is. on the edge as well, so it's automatically yeah. being deployed. You in could the call edge. it CICD. Yes, yeah, so there's we have an ed, there's a cloud edge manager where you upload and register the Docker container. It checks that you're compliant with API for data capture, and then it. Um, it 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 uh, uh, registers it for download, mm. and then when the edge is in a decent satellite connectivity, mm. it will then pull the image down and install it. Awesome, sounds. Awesome. Um, so that's so that so it's, so it is for so the the reason we have that is of course number one, um, not everybody has a cloud, mm. right? Number two, in some instances, the satellite or the lack of communication will will disallow you to rely on the cloud, yeah. but also for model performance reasons. Yeah. yeah, and data communication purposes or limited bandwidth and whatnot. Exactly. And latency purposes. Because it also like allows this. you to compress the data. 
Um, right. And time series data are interesting in the sense that very often there are many types of tags which are stateless tags. Mm. Right, so if uncompressed, it's going to be zero, 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 for right, right. and then one. <laughs> that's it. And you can decide whether that's going to be 100 megabytes or 10 bytes. <laughs> Not 10 bytes, but you know, one kilobyte. And you can right. deconstruct the, the, the unstructured sort of the full time series and then, okay, how can I solve it so I only need the pieces and we still understand what it is? Lossless compression, yeah. Lossless compression. Yeah. So that's that part. And, and you have also the hardware that you produce, or do you have off-the-shelf kind of hardware and you provide a software mainly? Or We we're, we purely provide and are responsible for the software. Yeah. Uh, but we, are, we have, of course, you know, preferred hardware yeah. uh, that we recommend our customers to use. But, but did you have to sort of, uh, uh, did you have to, you know, assemble your uh, edge gizmo, your software, and you got, you bought from some other, you know, so you have something that is rugged and can live out there. Did you have to source that together sort of thing? or The hardware part? Yeah. No, I mean, we, we, we didn't. Um, and there are plenty of uh, gateways out there for industrial use. And those gateways have now the ability to have Docker containers on them? No, that part we provide. Okay. Uh, so, so, so not in the gate, you need to, so there's something you need to put on the edge to have the Docker container, or you don't need to have a Docker container at the edge. Well, we basically provide the whole operating environment, right? So, so it's an, it's, it's an, so we basically we take a silly box mm -hmm. uh, and, and the only thing we require is that there is an operating system on it. And we prefer Ubuntu, but if you have, if you run Windows, fine. We even have Macintosh version, but only the salespeople and I use Mac that. On <laughs> yeah. Mac, Mac on the edge? Yeah. on the edge. Mac on the edge. That's a new t-shirt. Uh, that I will, that I will never wear. So I would never recommend <laughs> anybody to use a, Mac a, on the edge. A, a MacBook Pro for, for, for ingesting the data at the edge, but you know, it's good for sales purposes and demonstrations. Uh, yeah. um, no, so but then in that Ubuntu environment, uh, the edge agent software uh, runs the, the orchestrates the containers for you. Yeah, right. So, okay. so, so that is microcates or something, or do you have some kind of Kubernetes uh, orchestration software as well, like microcates or something? Or? Uh, so on the edge itself, I, I would not. I would hesitate to actually go into, but yeah. yeah so in the cloud, we use Kubernetes classes for it definitely. Yeah. On the edge, I would not want. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's super interesting. And then you have the software and it uh, continues. So this is the ingester. We only talk, talk, touched the ingester yeah, yet. Yeah, we're far we haven't from, even started. Far from, this is fun. This is fun. We haven't even started yet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, okay. And can you give some, you know, just to, to make it really concrete, it's easy to speak, you know, in a high level sense, but if you just take some examples like the crane and just continue that discussion, you know, how can you provide software that do some kind of analytics and insights um, that they have actually have some use for uh, in the crane. Yeah, so um, if we leave the tech pattern then and kind of so we're navigating a bit back up to the problem here. So mm -hmm. um, what we do in all situations, and we can use cranes as an example, yep. right? Uh, but I'll generalize it so you, okay. um, the, the people I'm talking about won't be offended by me not uh, you know, being fully, uh, you know. Correct. Correct. Mm -hmm. No, but the way it works is that um, we work together with, in this case, the... Um, the subject matter experts on the particular crane in question. Mm -hmm. and, and they will know what is likely or unlikely to happen to a crane. Yeah. And this is an importance that we do not do like deep learning things. Mm -hmm. I mean, with telemetric data, the thing is, a the types of failures we're talking about hardly ever happen, mm -hmm. which is the beauty of this type of equipment, but it's a nightmare for data scientists. Mm -hmm. uh, so what it means is that uh, we, we rely very much on rule-based type of analytics, right. or symbolic analytics, yeah. if you want to use that word. Um, I think so, rule base is better, but yeah. I've, I prefer, you cannot assess what it is. Um, so we work with the SMEs to encode mm -hmm. their knowledge, basically, yeah. to say, okay, what are the operating modes we should be looking for? Yeah. Yeah. Um, then we back into the data, 
And we try to see if those modes are visible by applying different types of statistical techniques. And then we'll go back and say, okay, um, is this trend here consistent with what you would expect it to be looking at historical data? And then we iterate quite fast. Um, so on cranes, we would have typically something around between four and four, four, 4,100 tags running at one hertz. Mm -hmm. And then there are between two and 250 models running. Um, most of them are rather simple rule-based, uh, you know, algorithms, if you will, or even just equations. Um, but a few of them are more into the space of machine learning and normally detection almost mo most of the time. So they're looking for anomalies and when they occur, they light up another flag that then the crane operator can react to and say, okay, this, something's going on. And, and there are then, you know, different levels of alarm. So we introduce the notion of a predictive alarm. So that mm -hmm. is not something that has happened. It's something that might happen. You can click on that and see which sensors contributed to the virtual sensor, the anomaly output flying, which were the most contributing sensors. And then you can make a judgment call as an expert to say, well, I think, I think the seal here is drying up. So I'm going to go and take a look at that. Mm -hmm. um, and what, what, what our applications also provide is then the, the workflow. And I think this is something that is, it goes back to act, right? We want to make sure that people can act on the data. And one way of doing that is providing a workflow that takes you very quickly from the information to what do I do now? Mm. And there are many, we can get back to that later. I think there, there are too many, why do I say too many? I think there are way, there are many um, data science endeavors which kind of forget what is the action that we're intending someone to do exactly. at the basis of this insight? Stopping at insight. Yeah, you stop at the insight. The right? information even. Even information sometimes. And I have so many examples of, of how that can play out. But in this particular case, what we've done is that we've said, when there is an event that has been triggered by a virtual sensor, we call them virtual sensors, the model outputs, um, there should be a bit of a prescription that says, number one. Recommender. Check, check, if, yeah, check if the sensor is okay. <laughs> Step number one. And, you know, if the sensor is okay, then, you know, it goes back to the O&M team. Mm. Sensor is okay. We've tested with the heat gun. So there is something off here. Okay. So I go out and investigate next step. And then even, and then even integrating that with designs and, and excerpts of PDF drawings of the, of the actual equipment. What this allows you to do is not only kind of enjoy, you know, let's say the ability to act on predictive events, but it also allows you to start codifying knowledge that is tacit. Uh, in tacit, so it's so a knowledge that you over 20 years as responsible for running, oh, right. you know, this pressure pump. You can put running. like domain knowledge into the algorithm. All, all of a sudden you have a product led way of harmonizing operational practices, right? right? So it's, you kind of using the product as a vehicle for harmonizing operations across. So if you have several fleets of equipment that are very similar, We've said we want to be able to scale very quickly a model across those. So we have the notion of central models, and then we have model instances, and there's versioning, and there's a CI/CD related to that. So you can scale quickly. The other thing, the other notion is, what's the difference between a central model and an instance model? Every piece of equipment has some external factors that are that are more likely than not to be unique to it. It can be things like temperature. It can be things like even how the operator at hand is operating it, right? Uh, not every crane operator has maybe the same gentle hands, right? Yeah. Um, so the component, even though the model has been trained on a specific type of a component, there's going to be some differences maybe in the data. Yeah. Maybe the control system is a little bit different. So we tune the model. Fine-tune the model based on a central pre-trained model. Exactly. So even though it's even so even if it's one model in our central repository, mm -hmm. 
it is then instantiated with some specific parameterization for each and every subcomponent that is listening to. Yeah, because be, to be in the actual real context of where it's operating. And this is why, yeah, exactly. Um, so coming back, uh, our, we're unable to in, take the, um, the, let's call it the real time insight of what's going on with my equipment, uh, get predictive insights on that. But then we can also integrate, of course, the, the maintenance and failure log. So you can see what, what has actually gone on. And is, is there, is there a pattern of this failure typically happening after someone has done this to the, sorry, this to the equipment. And then also on top of that, codifying these are the typical steps you would take if you get this type of anomaly. So we're trying, trying to, to get the actions as, yeah. as, as close to the data as possible. So is it mainly insights that you're providing or are you actually connecting that to some action that it takes in some autonomous way or? Oh, this is a great debate. Um, so we have uh, said for the longest time that, no, we, we are a software company. We do not want necessarily to be held liable mm. for writing instructions back into a, you know, refinery. Yes. <laughs> I can imagine that. Yeah. Having said that though, uh, there is, there are some gray areas here mm. where, you know, there, where we're being asked by customers, but you, can you just write this thing back here? this information because that would really simplify our lives and right. automate the step for us. So yeah. it, it, we're constantly reevaluating this position. Tough decision, I can imagine, but, especially if you're liable for what's happening then. But <laughs> yeah. we, we have, we had Henrik Landgren on the show here. Oh, ex-colleague of mine. Yes, really? of course. And uh, of course he was at Ikitu Ventures and he, he, he worked on the Mother Brain project. You know the Mother Brain project? Not, not in detail, but I know but you know it. of it, yeah. right? So, so here we are now working with uh, AI or analytics to support, um, you know, p people working in the venture capitalist space to identify the, the best um, opportunities, so to speak. And, and one of the things that he said, I think in a very eloquent way that I fully agree with is that one of the hardest things with data and AI in order to really drive another topic you mentioned, adoption, you know, if we really understand this from the adoption metric mm -hmm. versus we are successful with, with technology, mm -hmm. Uh, th there is clearly this whole topic of fam familiarity. And yes. if you have someone working with a in, in this working environment day by day, for he, me to get him to sort of go over here and look in a BI system, yeah. uh, it's cool, but will it really change his daily workflow? Mm -hmm. It will not. So, no. so he, his core argument was that with Motherbrain to succeed, they work more and more and more to really understand how they should take the data into a natural flow of what, whatever you're doing. And I think this yeah. goes hard hand in hand with your insight on it. I love it. That's exactly right. And I, and I think you even mentioned in the brief here that, you know, it, it is, we try to apply, I'm not a big fan of using frameworks. I don't know in detail, but design thinking. And for us, what it means is that we, we try to understand what is the day in the life of the technician that is running this piece of equipment? What does that look like? Mm. Right. And I, one of my most, I think, um, exciting and, and, uh, you know, memorable, uh, experience I ever had at Arundo is walking around the plants with yeah. people that know the plants. Right. Mm. And, you know, we would be at the shipyard, for example, and he would said, well, here you have, you know, four turbines, they run blasting on these metal sheets and that turbine over there is bothering me. Okay. Well, how is it bothering you? Well, you know, it starts getting hot and then it starts vibrating. And I, I can't really see that because it, it only collects these and these measures. So I'm like, okay, taking note of that. 
you know, we can do that, right? On to the next one. Here is a, here is a crane that lifts the plate from this station to that station. That gearbox gets really warm sometimes. I don't know why. Okay, let's start getting some data on that. And it's lovely, right? Because you can see he has some real day-to-day problems that, you know, you can hear the nature of these problems. You know, you, you can put sensors on these things, right? And typically, probably they are sensorized already. But, yeah, and, you can, and you can start relieving some of these things, right? But there are so many, there are a couple of things that to me is profound if you really want to be true about getting value out of data and AI. So f- the first one is the, the, core, the core, the first t-shirt. You need to get the AI working with the human in the normal circumstances. If you have to bring the person out of his workflow to look at BI, I mean, like, I think it's the whole whole idea that we go into a separate BI tool in a different system is to some degree flawed, right? Uh, and this is where I'm, I might say something that's going to anger some of my colleagues out there. Um, I think that is great with um, the visionary presentations where you know you gather the executive management team and you offer them the VR headsets. They can experience something really cool, uh, the, the digital twin of a factory. They can turn around, walk around in it, and, you know, you can get robotic dogs to, you know, walk around on your boat and everything. I think it's lovely. It's a lovely way of inspiring, I think. Sometimes that's really useful. So I'm not going to say it's not useful. Um, but um, <laughs> I have yet to meet a person on a site that wants another screen to look at. Yeah. Never mind putting glasses on, yeah. right? So you need, so you have to you have to be you have to be very humble to the fact that the if you don't get the adoption from the people exactly it it doesn't matter and 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 another thing is that uh, as our data science team that we have are um, they're data scientists of course uh, but but they're also really really good Python programmers yeah. and, and 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 they are as obsessed if not more obsessed as the rest of us are in the organization for solving a problem. And maybe sometimes it isn't the most exciting data science. Maybe it isn't. But they get to work with SMEs and see the eyes open up. Yeah. And, ah, I haven't seen this before. Really? You can visualize it like that? Yeah, you can visualize it. Wow. Can you build an app for that? So, and, and but, but this is, so you said it before, you know, when we we're talking about some of the key learnings from, from you know, what are we underestimating? We mentioned incident events, and then you have this whole thing about, I think it's very important around understanding change. So even if we can innovate really fast and go crazy, as long as we have humans as part of the, you know, to get value out of this in the loop, the adoption and the dimension of comfort and understanding how you, how you link back to their environment becomes to, to understand that's on a very, very deep level. I mean, like, let's talk about AI augmented UX or whatever. Mm-hmm. That piece of the puzzle becomes really, really important. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And that's why I came coming back to this thing about familiarity. Mm. Um, because even though we build analytic software, um, what we really love seeing is someone doing something a bit different tomorrow because they learned something that the software provided. And, and the, the software sometimes... We don't even need a UI. It's just an alert, mm. right? And I think it's <clears throat> core to some other topic that we have been speaking about a lot, which is the, the catch-22 problem, um, which basically means that we have domain experts that don't know anything about data or data-driven businesses. Yep. Um, but they know the business extremely well. And then you have data scientists or people that know how to work with data and algorithms, but they don't know anything about the domain. Yeah. If you just let the data scientists drive the work, 
you will lose all the domain knowledge and they don't even will know, you know, what they should do. And vice versa, if you just let the domain experts drive the work, they will not even, you know, come up with the ideas that it's possible to do with a data-driven approach. So you have to kind of fix this catch with the two. And I think what you said, just walking around on the, in the plant with the domain expert mm. is really how to come up with the innovative ideas that solves this catch-22 problem, right? It's a part of the answer because what they will feel is that we are empathizing with them. Mm. Uh, and so we're joining them. We're not trying to convince them that we know this equipment better. Right, right. That is a catch-22. Sometimes in order to get business, um, you may need to convince someone that, yes, we know this type of equipment. But we need to do that being a bit, uh, you know, eloquently articulate, let's say, yeah, about what we mean by that, yeah. right? Well, but also specifically, we know this equipment in the sense that we've built data models for it before. Right. It doesn't mean that we know, you know, we can never beat a, a pump manufacturer on how to run pumps. Mm. We can never beat someone that's worked with his or her pumps mm. Elevator for 20 like years. That. Yeah, there's no way that we can uh, know that better. What we can do is support, augment that knowledge with data in a way that you know often ha they haven't seen before but in order to, in order to in order to be invited for that dance we often have to do a little bit of that you know we need a little bit okay we make a small investment mm. you know if you if you agree to spend a few hours with us mm. you know and then if if you're still not convinced fine right but but in order to break this catch 22 you you need to offer something and often it is to to spend some time and 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 one of the traits that are so important for the people that, that in, in a company like Arundo is to be genuinely curious about the problem that right. that the customer has, yeah. um, so it, so so that they cannot automatically get into this. I want to read a paper on this chemical process now because this was so exciting. Mm -hmm. Not mm -hmm. not to become an expert, but to be able to have an even stronger be rapport next time I speak to this customer. Yeah, and. I, I wasn't really sure about the type of customers you have. You spoke about the governmental sector and also traditional industry. What type of, what's the, the type of customers that you work with? So in Arunda, it's only customers that run um, heavy critical assets. Um, okay. And ideally, so technically speaking, it is, um, you know, equipment that is undergoing wear and tear and where stops or unplanned maintenance events are highly costly, mm. uh, either due to the actual maintenance event being costly, but typically because of the production loss mm. being being costly. Uh, those are the customers we serve. And so energy is a good one. Steel, energy, steel, steel, steel works, Energy, mines. steel works, uh, chemical processing, mm. uh, equipment, uh, you know, heavy, 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 heavy equipment. duty equipment, like cargo handling equipment. Mm. Um, those are the types of customers we're working with. But you did work a lot with the government sector before, at least. Yes, um, I did, yeah. And can you just describe perhaps the main differences between working with more of an industrial sector and a government sector? Yeah, so there are a few things in common, I would say. And uh, this is also, uh, probably might get shot afterwards for some of the things <laughs> I, I, I might offer here, but that's okay. Um, no, there, there are a few things in common, which is the, uh, the focus on this has to be resilient, it has to be stable, we don't introduce change lightly, um, because it has to work, right? We're serving... So maybe you could say the in, civil servants may have this greater good um, mindset. Um, in in heavy industries, it is safety, 
safety, right, safety, right, safety, yeah. right? So they have that in common, which makes it slow to change, right? For mm-hmm. good and bad. There are good reasons for that. But then there are some things that are very different then, right? So the, the stakeholder landscape and the way governance and financing works in the public sector is, of course, very, very different, right? Mm-hmm. So even though everybody agrees it's a great idea, it doesn't mean that it necessarily will happen in the government sector. Depending on which country you are, uh, ultimately it might be politically driven, uh, I think in Scandinavia, you are, you know, maybe a bit more likely to end up with a, a an answer to the question which is less politically driven because of the way we set up the system. Uh, but you do have the strive for uh, earning the right to govern the country in the next elections. That underpins a lot of mm. how decisions are made. And I think that's the way it should be, right? But it's that's different, of course. Mm. Um, heavy asset industries, they have heavy assets. They're expensive. It's ROI in the end, at the end Oracle of the day. ROI, yeah. yeah. Safety and ROI. Yeah, so I, interesting. I have one question that I would like to explore a little bit. Um, how do Arundo define product? And because you said a little bit like you, you're highlighting how you've been on some sort of, you know, startup pivot uh, journey, right? Go yeah. from here to platform. Now we do products. Yes. What do you mean with product or how do you define product in this sense? And how does this, what's the pivot that happened? So the pivot that happened for us was um, we... If we leave the early POC days aside, yes. that's, um, then we spent um, uh, a good two years, I think, building up what we would call a platform. And what I mean by platform is that um, it wouldn't solve a problem for the operational responsible customers. It would allow their data scientists and their engineers to wire data up and deploy their own models and then consume the results. So it's very much an analytics platform type of thinking. Mm-hmm. That's still a product. So I get your point. It's still a product. You get stuck in your own uh, terminology, right? What we're doing now is saying we have those components now, but what we found is that the customers we have don't necessarily have that data science team or that willingness or ability uh, or competency to build that application. So we said, okay, then we do that. So now we build the application that actually attempts to solve the problem. That's what we call the product. And now, now here's then, how do you, how do you understand that then? Because in one way you can have sort of use cases on the shelf, but it almost sounds like you kind of need to build like the product solution for each use case or each installation or what's the difference between now? Is this a product product or is this a product with a lot of tail- tailor- tailoring or something like that. It's how, a, how would you define, pro- you know, do you see what I'm after? after absolutely. And this is a, um, a what, what I would say is that um, defining these boundaries is a bit of a f- constant conversation. Um, mm-hmm. And I would say that's fine, right? But we have two distinct offerings in which very much builds on what you're saying. So equipment-centric analytics, for equipment-centric analytics. So let's say you're running a plant, and you have the same type of plant on five, six, seven different sites, mm-hmm. um, and you know that there are four or five really critical equipment systems on each site. Then the equipment-centric analytics is the way to go. Uh, and that application is quite opinionated. Um, that's quite opinionated. So the only configuration that happens there is making sure that the models are tuned against the specific equipment in question and further models might be developed. So that is really a configuration. We will call that a configuration service that goes into installing a product and, and, and uh, validating the, the model frameworks, the model instances. So that's one world. 
The other world is if you're in the more complex processing industries where there are many, many different small and big pieces of components necessary in order for you to run, for example, a chemical process, a chemical um, process all the way through. In that case, we have um, a, a number of technology components which allow you to deploy complex model, complex data structures. So um, we have one case now where we're developing an, an environment, a set of environmental use cases inside a product. And there are thousands of equations. And these equations, they rely on each other and they have dependencies on sensors that are different in timestamps and arrive from different systems. We have built IP that allows you to create a graph-based um, um, relationship model of all these things, which also contain meta information about the actual sensor, the quality of the sensor, the provenance of the data, etc. That is a piece of IP we call domain and compute IP. It allows you to um, represent a complex manufacturing setup digitally using the graph. We don't call it the digital twin. I was going to ask that. Have you, have you gone down that rabbit hole or not? There, there are some <laughs> of my very dear management colleagues and investors that would love if I called it a digital twin and exactly. you know, might do it. And it is a digital twin if you want, but we, yeah, we don't call don't. it that. Please don't. Yeah, we don't call it that. It is, it, is, it, is a, it is a digital graph. It's a directed graph representation of a, 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 a domain of equipment and processes that hang together. Next to that, there is a compute orchestrator that allows you to traverse the tree, traverse the graph in order to produce a, a number and then write that thing back into an application database which feeds the back and which feeds the front end. So this sort of, you can call it MLOps if you want to, but that's also another word which, you know, you can put many different interpretations into. But this is a core technology that we're using for those types of applications where you need to customize. So, so I'm trying to get it right because in one way you have a product set. Yes. And, and, and you have some, some core offerings. You call that um, the, the, the equipment-centric. That product is called Marathon. Yeah. This is Marathon. Yeah. And then you have now for more process-centric problems. Process we have Insight. Yeah. Process Insight. So yes. Marathon and Process Insight. But essentially, you, you live in a reality of heavy equipment that has a legacy for 50 years and there's been mm -hmm. replacements. So to know which controllers and gateways... There are all different, you know, there's no one single heavy equipment plant that looks exactly the same, even if they exactly shoot, right. they shoot on paper, right? Yeah. But they don't. They don't. So here, basically, you can then go up with a core product offering, but then basically you have to do some sort of onboarding installation yes. setup. And then ultimately, not only that, if I understand you right, you actually need to tune the use case. So even if you have that, it's slightly what they want to do or, or, you know, what's the value, what's the alert they want yeah. could probably vary. That varies. Um, so if we, if we take the equipment world of Marathon, um, uh, we need to do, of course, a, an investigation of which equipments do you really want to exactly. worry about? Is it all of them or a few of them? And, and, and this is where I, um, okay, I'll park that thought and get back to that because it's another rabbit hole. But, <laughs> you, but you need to kind of defi define the business problem in, in equipment terms. Right. What, what equipment should we have some yes. data insight exactly. uh, actionable? Exactly. And then, then we create a, an asset hierarchy out of that information that is fed into our domain model. That is their asset, asset hierarchy. But mm. given that both OPC UA and SCADA systems and their ISO uh, standards for this, it, it is starting to standardize. If the standard is there, we can just read it in. But in most cases, uh, there, is a, there is sort of manual intervention required. You can use some NLP techniques to infer which equipment and sensor belongs to a tag ID. Um, and we do that on, on occasion. 
but that is a bit of configuration that's happened. But then in the marathon world, um, often the the first because the other thing is you can't wait for data science to find the the needle in the haystack. That's that's because what you want to do is scale those kind of day to day insights very quickly. So the first set of models, if you will, that we that we uh, uh, deploy are often simple things like I want to see the pressure at the start and the pressure at the end of the pumping cycle and divide it by the, let's say, a discharge pressure or an RPM or something like that. That's mm-hmm. the thing I want to see. And I think I want to have an alert when it goes above a certain level or, or if it stays above a certain level more than you know five minutes. And that is really fast that we do like this. Mm-hmm. And then you can scale that across. That's where it starts, which means that within two or three weeks, if the data connectivity issue is resolved, which is another customer-specific thing, right? You can get into that exactly. if you want to. Um, you will be able to start consuming this data and see some benefits from it. And then over time, at the, you know, depending on how relevant it is, and often it is quite relevant, you can go into looking for more advanced techniques mm. to find not the needle in the haystack, but patterns that might be indicative of things that you're worrying about. But it's interesting because you, it, it, the product thinking also refers to the way I understand it now, that in order to meet the maturity and the organizational sort of, you know, from data to data engineering to machine learning, they want to be their core domain. So they want to consume the insight basically as a domain expert. And for you, it becomes a product thinking, even if it's a tailored or customized product, it's the way you sell. You sell on the outcome and the action rather than selling on, oh, here you have a bunch of tech that you can do something cool stuff with, good luck with that. Yeah, no, that's what we're trying to do. And we've made it deliberately difficult for ourselves in that sense. <laughs> no, I, I mean that kind of seriously because it, it is a kind of difficult sell to say that we're, we're going to build software that is statistically likely to solve a problem. Uh, uh, but it's a, it, it, it is the most fun thing to do, I have to say. Yeah. And it's, it is, it is an, it's a terrific challenge. Um, and why did you go in this direction? Is it simply because it, to meet the maturity of the customer, to have a product market fit? That, um, yes, more and more. So in a sense, you could say that um, to Jakob, the founder, um, he had this vision already in 2015 that that is where he wanted to go. But then how to get there has evolved from you know, POCs to platform to product or to application, if you will. Mm. But we've always had the same vision. It's always been the same vision. But how to get there has evolved a bit. And yes, mm. now we've figured out that if, if we really want to take on that mission of providing actionable insight, action, right? It has to be a certain element of, of customization, if you will. Not necessarily like UI-wise, not necessarily, right? But the the way the you know algorithms and calculations are set up, that has to be custom. But that's fine. That's also why I said this, this marathon is an example of a product which is feature complete from a UI point of view and from a backend point of view. Now it's about you know continuing to automate the way we onboard and scale. Yeah, because I can imagine that you you now better and better understand the problem, and there will be will always be a data and configuration problem here that is unique for each yes. uh, plant. However, we can automate the way the machine understands what it all is and sort it all out. Yes. So we need to customize this, but we can have the product do it for us rather than we hardwire that. And the fifth time you do that customization, you take a little bit of overhead out. The sixth time you realize that this we can actually automate. The seventh time, you know. So it is. it, it comes back to this we talked about earlier, which is having two thoughts at the same time, which is, yes, now we have delivery personnel, customer success personnel that is working with the customers to help out with this configuration. 
But every time we do that in the retro, they're like, hey, this particular thing here, I could see that pattern in the Excel file. So, you know, so maybe next time, is there a way to, yeah, of course, you know, somebody raised, yeah, I, I can do, I can do a parser I can do a for that. I can do a parser. Maybe blah, a parser, blah, blah. That, no problem, right? So then that, that, that becomes a, an, experiment, an experimental feature. And then, you know, over time, it, it gets onto the roadmap. Cool. Super. The <clears throat> time is flying away and I'm trying to <laughs> prioritize a bit the different topics here. <laughs> And um, I was planning to ask a bit about, you know, leadership, what's the way to actually provide great leadership and build teams, recruitment, how to find talents, getting funding as you have as well in Arundo. I think I skip all that. And, uh, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and perhaps go a bit more into more philosophical, societal kind of long-term topics. Okay. And uh, and I'm actually eager because you mentioned cybersecurity a number of times, and and I think not speaking specifically about Arundo, but more in general about the society we have today, and also that we are currently not we in Sweden, but some parts of Europe is in at war currently. Um, what is your thought about cybersecurity? How can companies defend against this? Do you have any thoughts about that in general? I have, I have some general thoughts. This is not an area that I'm particularly expertise in. I haven't mm. any particular expertise in. Um, but I, one observation I do make is, uh, there is still some organizations out there that think that they're going to prevent this. Yeah. And I don't think that's the case. I, I think this is one of those things that it's not a matter of whether. I think the mindset we have to have is not whether you're going to be hacked. It is when. Yes. So I think the investment needs to move towards how do we minimize the amount of, how do we minimize um, the impact of when we are hacked and how do we then restore operations after we've been how hacked? And, and, and I think there, and, and there are two, and then I think the next problem is, even if you take that leap, is minimizing the impact doesn't, doesn't necessarily only mean, um, you know, being able to shut something down quickly, right? It could also mean just having less sensitive things. And that is something that sometimes is undervalued, I think. So just, just being a bit sort of careful about um, how much am I actually, how much do I need to have stored in places that are not air-gapped mm. in, order, in order to run my operations. Um, and I think that sometimes, you know, I, and I can see that, uh, I'm not speaking of Arundo specifically, but I think we're all sometimes a little bit sort of careless and yeah, there's, uh, you know, I made you know, Google slides presentation with something and I, oh no, I'm a bit of a hurry. I'm just going to kind of PDF fit send it somewhere. And I think there, there is a certain amount of prudency that, that we're not there yet. Some industries are way there. Some industries are very much Which there. Which one would you say is leading? I mean, we know some that is not, uh, not saying Coop specifically, but perhaps <laughs> one of their suppliers or colleagues, Commune or some government, uh, governmental agencies there. Who, who do you say is rather well prepared? Well, I think there, there are some industries that have had a culture of, of safety going way, way back. And mm -hmm. I think the heavy industries are, are one of those. Okay, interesting. So uh, one thing that I learned when I started working with industrial companies is cultural uh, elements like safety moments. So every meeting will start with a safety moment, which is five minutes of somebody telling a story yeah. of, uh, you know, an anecdote of, you know, something that happened and how safety culture was important mm -hmm. uh, or, you know, reciting uh, part of the value statements of the company related to safety. So safety is just in the culture. I mean, 
even something that I'd never seen at a bank or telecom company is a clear instruction saying that if you're walking the stairs, always put the hand on the, on the, on the, on the rail. And these are things, to, it's in the culture to take care right. of yourself and be safe to become like you. Exactly. You're not allowed to park your car front first. You have to back your car into the parking spots. You can leave fast. These are things that are ingrained in some of these industries. And, and I think that, that was fascinating to me to see. So it, it can be an effect of, I mean, some heavy industry companies have the physical safety in mind and the safety of people physically, so, so to say, which is an important part. And that can spill over to a more digital and cyber security aspect as well, just because they have the mindset of yeah. safety. Yeah. But of course, that doesn't eradicate the competence gap, mm. uh, right. which is, you know, what is your ability to track the type of competence you need to, you know, work effectively with cybersecurity, like minimizing vector, minimizing uh, surface uh, sort of attack surface, um, thinking about technical ways of restoring after something has gone down, etc. Mm. You know, um, having you know constant pen tests being done. All this. I mean, there's a competency gap, of course, uh, and some industries are able to pay more, yeah. frankly speaking, for the and, and have been and, and they have, a, let's say, a, more of a reputation risk. Maybe sometimes. If I ask a more general question, then. Perhaps not for Sweden, but for other countries in, in Europe or in the world. Are you afraid that you know cyber attacks can be dangerous to society in some worlds because they attack like energy companies or infrastructure company, companies or, or similar type of critical infrastructure that you have? Country? It's, it's not the topic I've been thinking too much about. Mm. Uh, so I, I don't think I would share anything insightful apart from maybe the obvious that I think. I think this is, there's way, there's much more of a, let's call it, um, I don't want to, I don't want to call it the war now, but there's much more tension going on here than we, than we think. And the board is reported. I think there is, we see a small, small tip of an iceberg that is continuously ongoing here. Yeah. And I wouldn't be surprised if, um, you know, a fair share of future, con- we've already seen it, right? But a fair share of future conflicts are initiated and ended, ended you know, in, in cyberspace, in cyberspace. Yeah. Yeah. But now I'm really speculating. It's not something I've been thinking very much about. Yeah. Who has, I think it's a lot of people that should. But it, there, there's also now the, the, this whole competence gap is quite interesting, right? Because I worked with Vattenfall for many years and I, I, I fully concur with you with that within the heavy asset industry. And even if you have the NSI, type class information. So, you know, I've been, I've been around people that run uh, critical networks and nuclear power plants. Mm. They are, they are good. Mm. They, they are, they are, and, and the safety culture, the way you said it with the handrail, oh, I, I used, yeah, I, I know who, I, I can think about Uber, right? Like, <laughs> and it's there, it's a culture, right? And it, and it spills over to IT security and all that, all good. What I found now is a little bit like, the competence gap now is that we are starting to use a slightly different types of technologies when we're using the cloud, especially. And basically, I would argue to some degrees, cloud can be more safe. But what you need to protect, how you do it, how you work it, so mm. to speak, is different. So basically, you, you, we have the problem now that we have maybe even very good rigorous approaches but they're kind of set up for a different technology stack mm. where you can do, you know, you, you do the onion, you know, you do the you security in one way and now you need to really rethink it. So here it's this uh, trick that, that how we do it, you know, we have been good at it, but there is now a competency gap, uh, how it needs to be rethought to some degree yeah. is my argument. 
I think you're right. And um, I, what I have observed myself is um, the one of the, I don't think this is, this is a big issue or not, but I've clearly observed that the, the use of you know, open source components uh, and generous use uh, and often rather unmanaged use of, of you know, huge you know, trees of dependencies in building out your apps um, you know, using tools like Snook, et cetera, you can get somewhere, right? But um, I think someone, I, I don't, I don't, know, I don't say that I, I necessarily agree with this because I haven't thought through it enough. But somebody said, "Hey, if you find an open source package package you love, rip out the pieces you really need and just write them yourself." Um, interesting. I, which is and this is actually interesting because you actually. See, I don't, I don't think, I don't think I agree with it. But it was an and it was based on this sort of. How do you manage these dependent? How do you keep control of the whole? Because every, every time you add something, yeah. you you know, if you look at the type of attacks that are going on, like the this sort of um, vulnerabilities that are instant, yeah. it's very often related zero day, to yeah. some zero day, right? They very often relate to some little package somewhere that wasn't patched fast enough, yeah. right? And yeah. I mean, that also ties back, I think, a bit to, to what you mentioned in the beginning. You're getting a bit uh, back into coding yourself, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I am. What's up with that? What, what are you doing then? No, I, I um, when I started at the Rundo, I hadn't, I hadn't written a line of code since 99, I think, 1998. <laughs> and uh, and I, I kind of thought somewhat arrogantly that, well, you know, I know, I, I used to do coding like professionally in yeah. back in the nineties. So, you know, I should be able to at least follow the language. And boy, was I wrong. <laughs> I had no, I just realized that there's so much has happened. Mm. Um, and you know, in my, in my, in my old days, you would basically start from a clean sheet and just C++ your way forward. Yeah. Right. Um, and now it's like, no, it's, it's like this, we have these packages, CICD and DevOps and the infrastructure and cloud. And I had no idea what was going on. Yeah. So I just decided, okay, I am, I'm going to, I'm going to learn how to build web apps. Mm. And then I just went from there. And what kind of technology or frameworks did you start playing around with to build web apps? Well, the, the very, <laughs> so I sat down with my son, he's 14 now. Uh, yeah. So I sat down with my son in our summer house and he had his laptop and I had my laptop. I said, let's, let's just build an app together. And we just find a YouTube video randomly of somebody building oh, nice. a weather app in React. Yeah. And, you know, the last time I touched JavaScript was kind of frustratingly, I just needed a button button to work. <laughs> so for me, JavaScript was the thing you had to go into when the HTML didn't do it for you. Mm. And now all of a sudden people were building backends in this stuff. <laughs> Are you kidding me? But it's also, it takes some time to just get into React and, you know, learn how that works. Well, I didn't know what I was doing, right? Uh, but that, so then, then I backed my way back out. And okay. so I, I, I learned, learned it. I started experimenting with JavaScript, uh, went into TypeScript very quickly because mm -hmm. our engineers were using TypeScript and I realized, okay, now I'm a bit on more familiar grounds because JavaScript yeah, yeah. just felt a little bit too wild, wild, wild west for me. Yeah, yeah. But typed, great. Now yeah. I can breathe again, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, you know, I just started experimenting from there on and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, trying to learn. I, do it, uh, I don't build useful apps. I just build apps for learning. So I do it the hard way every time. It's a hobby. Oh, and, yeah. uh, and this is like a hobby, yeah. like a, a way to... And I like it. Are you experimenting with your son? Is he following in this, or did he did his interest die? Well, his interest is up maybe and, it's up and, it's up and down. It's up and down. It's up and down. Uh, so sometimes he would look over my shoulder when I do something, and then you know he will you know ask what are you building now. I don't know, explain it. And he's like okay, 
so it's up and down. You know, 14 years old. Other things are more interesting, so, like gaming. <laughs> Do you think it's getting easier to start coding things, or is it getting more advanced? I mean, we have been speaking, for example, that to build an AI system, we need more and more specialized skills potentially. I, I could also argue that that's not the right direction going forward and may not be so. But you can see at least today that we have more and more roles to build up a team with to be able to build some application. Mm. What would you what do we say about coming five years? Do you think it will be easier to build a weather uh, web app than it is today or harder? Uh, so I, given this new hobby of mine, I've been trying to stay um, as aware as I can of trends that are going on. Uh, I, of course, not succeeding because I don't have time. But, but one thing that I've looked at and I'm not convinced of yet is kind of the no code movement. movement. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started experimenting with uh, one or two of those frameworks and um, it left me thinking, well, yeah, okay, that's that's kind of a prototype just taken a little bit further. The other thing I was very interested in is things like what Tab9 is doing when they're using GPT in the cloud in order to predict the code you're writing. Right. Tab nine. Tab uh, nine. Okay. If you, if you, if you don't have tab nine installed in VS Code, you're doing something wrong, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, so basically, you start, you, you start writing. You start writing like something. So it's a co-pilot thing with it's a co-pilot thing. Exactly. Yes. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that is so. I, I see these two trends, right? So you have no code, and then something that starts trying to write the code for you, trying mm-hmm. to kind of predict what you're going to do next. This makes you very fast. Yeah. Now I'm an engineer, so my next thing is going to be very biased. Mm-hmm. I love the co-pilot. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, th- but I'm not. Sh- um, the the no code movement is not clear to me how how opinionated that will be with respect to the the distance from that to something you want to take to production properly. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I'm so your argument is that no times. code might be good for rapid prototyping, but could it really be performant and robust? I don't know ever? yet. Yeah, I, it's, it's, they, they, they would sell it like this. You can build your robust production system on it, but but really rapid prototyping, hmm, maybe, but. That's yeah. your core question, right? That's a, that, yeah, and it is a question. Uh, I'm genuinely unsure. I don't know. I don't know. But I think it. But to your to, to your question, I think it's going to be faster. Uh, I think faster. The, yeah. yeah. I think this year? I think the learning curve to go from I have no idea what code is to Hey, I have a weather app. I think that's going to be shorter and shorter. But what I also have experienced myself mm-hmm. uh, going from the weather app to now one of the things I have, I have my five, I have a sentiment market sentiment analyzer that scrapes headlines. Mm. So that's five microservices working in orchestration. <laughs> and I just realized, okay, boy, g- going from that, it's, it looks simple, mm. but the underlying complexity of kind of thinking through the, all the different infrastructure elements that need to work together in order for that thing to actually function properly and all the problems that can occur in between that is, I'm not sure that is getting any easier. Right. There are a lot of great automation things out there. Like if I think what Heroku is doing is cool. What Netlify is doing is cool. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you have Firebase, you have these things coming out. That's cool. That's moving in that direction. But but where is where is the line? Where do you draw the line where this becomes so opinionated that you're stuck? Um, Flexibility goes down potentially. Yeah. yeah. Which is, to your point, um, having a culture of it's okay to throw it out. Yeah. And I think the the and a good engineer, software engineer, is less married to the technology and the language used and more adaptable to saying, okay, well, if can't do this in, you know, can't do this in JavaScript, so I may have to brush up my Python for this one. And I think that's cool. I think that's, I mean, like, I, I, I see that with the people I work with that I, that I admire, which is really 
you know, deep in data processing, big data. We like, we have, we have mutual friends that they are more hardcore into the fundamental software engineering or data engineering practice, mm. you know, and they know what really how to understand the real technical problem. And then they really, uh, then they have their favorite. They tend to, oh, kind of have find more use of GCP or these airflow here because it's, I like it. It's, but they, they are, they are not lo in love with it. They really, they are marrying the tech to the data problem at hand. Mm -hmm. And I think that is one difference that I see sometimes to a, a more the enterprise way where sort of you drive enterprise guardrails in a very unhealthy way, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're trying to push on, oh, we should do everything the same way. Well, what's the data problem you're solving? And the real engineers, they love the engineering bits and yeah. they know that and they are comfortable to switch if, well, right, this one is not really good to solve in Julia or in Python or whatever it is. So yeah, I, exactly. And, and <clears throat> there's another thing that I, I found, which is um, there is always a bit of religion going on between <laughs> yes you know, a bit you know, a bit yeah a bit right you, are you going native cloud or are you going to stick to kind of docker kubernetes world yeah. are you going to you know are you, is, is dot net the thing or are you going to do node you know so um but i i think at the end of the day if you're a if you're a smallish company it's it's not about the language it's about the ability to have flexibility in your resourcing right so it's not so it having different languages only really becomes a problem if you only have people that know those languages because then you're not able to get the maximum leverage out of the, the engineers you have. What, what's the main language where most of your product is written in? Oh, it's Node.js no TypeScript. And then we have a bit of .NET going on as well. Um, every, data scientists, they all do everything in Python, of course. Mm. Yeah, so uh, so you have a, you have your Python world yeah, and then you have a TypeScript world. <laughs> the Python world and TypeScript world, it all ends up in the containers. And then all in containers, right? Yeah. And then what? And then you, Docker's Kubernetes, fifty-fifty, or in the end more Kubernetes. Well, the images are are, are, are Docker images, and they're orchestrated by Kubernetes, in Kubernetes clusters. Yeah, yeah. So going back to the original question a bit, um, if we were to be a bit optimis optimistic and hope for the best, do yes. you believe in a world where AI can help not only in actually having intelligent products, but actually having you know making human engineers more intelligent by Using Copilot to generate code, to find bugs, to prevent, you know, security vulnerabilities, and in that way, still allow programming to be done faster and more safe, potentially. Yeah, not only. Yeah, I, I, I am a techno optimist for sure, yeah. um, and I, I would even argue that there is uh, empirical evidence to support that view. I mean, mm -hmm. going all the way back to, you know. Malthus and the Malthusian theory of that, you know, we're going to overconsume the earth resources. And you know, how did we yeah. curb, curb that? You will buy technology, technological, you know, uh, innovation mm. and by productivity improvements through technology innovation. We have sort of innovated ourselves out of one problem after the other. Mm. And I'm, I'm naive optimist that that's going to continue, right? Yeah. I really am. Having, having said that, I think that, um, when we talk about a AI is not a thing, right? It's, it's so many different things. Mm. And, and on different levels. And on, and on very different levels. Um, so I think that if we, I think that AI as a, an umbrella concept for finding ways of helping us or automating tasks, very positive, mm. very positive. I just think we need to realize that there are certain things that certain approaches are really good at and they really suck at others, right? Good, well said. 
on that positive end note, <laughs> I think we, we should uh, try to, to close up a bit and uh, perhaps go to the, the standard cl uh, closing questions. You know, what's up in, uh, in your life coming uh, days, months, uh, perhaps privately, professionally, anything specific uh, planned? Well, um, next week is uh, Sportlov. Yes. Uh, uh, winter break. So we're going to spend some time uh, on Dalar Gorge with the family nice. and just nice. hang out. That's nice. Take a few days off. Um, I am uh, keen to get back to cleaning up some problems I have with my news uh, market <laughs> sentiment app. Yeah. Can't wait. To, I got some great feedback from, from friends. I can't wait to get into that backlog. Should get into some Birch uh, model as well, I think. I, I, if you if you can recommend a good model for Swedish sentiment assessments, uh, let's talk. <laughs> Go to um, Hugging Face and the KB Kundabliotekets uh, repository there for some. Uh, they have an Alberta model that's really good in Swedish as well. Great, I'm going to look into that. Thank you. Uh, then, apart from that, I think uh, it's uh, maybe I'll venture into studying some new piece on the piano. Let's mm -hmm. see. Um, but uh, the bigger plan for this year is to maybe start the sauna construction project at the summer house. Ooh, that's yeah, the big one. That's the big one. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's a small one, but it's a big one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds perfect. Anyone that you would recommend to have on this podcast, someone that you would like to listen and learn from? Uh, oh, wow. Um, well, um, have you had... Oh, I should have thought about this question before we went in there. Um, but I was thinking that there, there are a few people that uh, I really enjoyed working with during the time I was a, sort of a consultant within the public sector digital space. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've had them on the podcast, but I'm thinking about Osa Setteberg, Per Mosseby, Anne Helenius. Osa Setteberg is a great name. We should yeah. certainly get her, I think. Yeah, because I, I would love to hear how they have, so how they're thinking about their experiences now, so partially hindsight, partially very current, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Awesome. That sounds great. With that, I thank you for this awesome time and uh, all the questions we haven't been able to answer. We will continue with them perhaps in the after after work and even more interesting topics, I think, that we will continue discussion. But thank you very much, Martin Lucas. Thank you very much for having me. Awesome, thank you. Martin. Thank you.